welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. I'm Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side. And I'm David, the Skeptic. All right, and today we're back to a regular show, uh, just between me and David, uh, discussing a topic. And this week it's my turn to choose a topic for you guys. And I wanted to start off um, a three, possibly four-part series um, on the Christian doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. Um, and try and check out the coherence of, the, of this. Uh, how, do these concepts make sense? Um, does the Bible support these teachings or is it contradictory with these teachings? Um, you know, these Christian doctrines, which are essential doctrines, right? You, you have to believe in Jesus' deity, uh, at the very least Jesus' deity to, to be saved. Um, and that he came and died for our sins as an incarnate human. So, so yeah, I think this is definitely fits in with David's theme of real Christianity for this season. Um, so this week, I am actually going to be making a claim. And we're going to be starting with the Old Testament. Uh, you know, I want to claim that the Old Testament, the Protestant Hebrew Bible, is consistent or non-contradictory with um, the Christian notion of God being a quote-unquote complex unity. Um, and that God became incarnate in a in human form. Um, so this is a vague claim. I, I'm not defining that a complex unity has to be a trinity. That that's just one means of being a complex unity. But I, I'm keeping it my claim vague um, because the Old Testament doesn't get as specific as the New or as our models of the Trinity and that sort of thing. So yeah, uh, this is this is what I claim to prove that the Old Testament teaches. Um, God is a complex unity and could become incarnate uh, in human form, uh, at the very least temporarily or permanently. So let's get into my case. So the, the first, geez, where is it? Okay, so the, the first uh, thing that we need to keep in mind here, um, when we say Trinity, I'll, I'll give David, uh, for David's benefit, a, a working thing. So the Trinity is, look, there, God is three persons in one being or one substance. Um, and I think it's summarized by the, the gospel, the opening uh, thing in the Gospel of John, where in the beginning was the Word, that's referring to Jesus, and the Word was with God, so he's distinct from God the Father, and the Word was God. Um, meaning that he's one in substance. So this is what we're aiming for with the Trinity. And when we come to the Old Testament, Jew, modern-day Jews will be vehemently against this. Um, they'll point to verses like Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and this is known as the Shema. This is fundamental to all modern uh, Judaism. And it says, look, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not a complex unity, but not some uh, multiplicity of, of gods or tritheism or something like this. He's one. Um, furthermore, in terms of the incarnation, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says, Look, God is not a man uh, that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. So verses like these are really the proof texts that Jews will use to say, 
Christian notions of the the Trinity or deity of Jesus and the incarnation are totally against the Bible. It's it's some pagan religion or something like that. Um, so in the first place, how do we respond to these? So my first factor is well, is there are there any verses in the Old Testament that actively contradict the Trinity or the incarnation? And the answer is no. So in the place of the uh, Shema. In all cases, whenever the word God is one, the word the Hebrew word for one there is Echad, or I call it Ishad. It's the wrong way to pronounce it. It's not Yahid. Um, now Yahid and Echad both mean one in English. Echad is like the English word one. It, it can have different meanings. There's one uh, pencil on my desk. It, you know. Uh, or there's one team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, but obviously it carries with it different meanings. It, it can refer to complex unities. And in, in the Bible, it always refers to a complex unity. Like there's one vine with a bunch of grapes, right? Um, the word yahid is never used. And that means only one or an absolute oneness um, in sort of a philosophical, a Unitarian concept of God. And this word is never used to describe God. It's always the word ichad, uh, which entails that there's a complex unity. Um, so the Hebrew Bible, for example, uses this in Genesis 2:24. The man and the woman become one flesh, ichad, when they're married. Um, so, yeah, b- believe it or not, there, there is no verse in the Bible that says God is one in the sense that it's contradictory with a Trinitarian uh, understanding or, or the, another understanding of God as a complex unity. Um, now, in terms of the verses, God is not a man that he should lie. Um, the Bible, it's not saying necessarily that God can't become incarnate or take on the form of a man or anything like that. It's talking about it in regards to his moral properties, right? God, God is not a man that he should lie or that he should act sinfully and that sort of thing. So that's what these Verses, when you really read them in context, are actually saying. Um, and uh, Dr. Mo- I quote Dr. Moshe Weinfield, who's a Hebrew scholar, Jewish, non-Christian, and he mentions, look, with the meaning of echad, whenever it's used in the Hebrew Bible, it has nothing to do with the internal nature of God. Um, so when we're talking about the Old Testament, when it's describing God's nature, or Yahweh's nature. It's not asking this question in a philosophical sense, like what is God? It's always asking who is God? And that's the way the Bible, the biblical writers understanding addressing God's nature. And this sort of leads into um, Dr. Richard Bauckham's research on this and his notion of the divine identity, which I find to be a very helpful category. So. Look, there, there are two ways, two fundamental ways uh, that ancient Jews in the Old Testament period thought about God. And they, ex- instead of describing what Yahweh was intrinsically, they looked at his relations extrinsically. So his relations in terms of the covenant relationship with, uh, with Israel, you know, what he did. He brought them out of slavery out of Egypt and, and his role throughout salvation history. Uh, or the history of the nation of Israel, uh, and that sort of thing. And then the second was God's extrinsic relationship with all of reality or nature. 
So God was had extrin- unique extrinsic relations to the Hebrew mind. He was the creator and sustainer of all of creation. He was the sole sovereign ruler over all creation. Uh, pagan deities just didn't compare. Um, I'll, I'll wait for David to bring that up. Um, there's also a third sense, and there, there's, um, I think it's Dr. Uh, John Sawyer in his article. Um, he mentions that uh, there's also, so there's the cultic monotheism, there's the creational monotheism, but there's also the eschatological monotheism where God is going to, again, assert his sovereignty over all of creation in the end times and do a bunch of good stuff at the end of the at the end of the world. So this is really what the Bible focuses on. It, it's a question of who is God or Yahweh, uh, not what is Yahweh, which is what the Christians uh, really in the second, second, third, and fourth centuries and beyond were really tackling. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, with that, are there any positive indications then that God could be this, could be a complex unity uh, consistent with a Trinitarian understanding and that sort of thing? So the first thing is um, the issue of the divine word of God. So remember, I quoted the Gospel of John, and it calls Jesus the Logos, which is Greek for uh, word. Um, And... Basically, the Hebrew Bible actually uh, reinforces this word, this uh, view. So, first of all, Jews at the times had this notion of the visible and invisible God, gods plural. There's two gods, at least, uh, excluding the Holy Spirit. So there was the visible God and there was the invisible God, and we'll get get to that in a minute. But um, you know, people like Philo of Alexandria had their notions. So this is for you, Arthur. Uh, I mentioned him. Uh, Philo of Alexandria had the divine logos, um, which was seen as a second god. Um, in the Old Testament, there's this mention of divine wisdom, as though it is a second god, right? And logos refers to, a, in Greek thought, as a rational principle um, or, or, you know, wisdom that comes about. So there's this notion of a, a mediator. Uh, even in the Aramaic Targum, so these are the Aramaic translations of the Old Testament that were read, read in the synagogues during the time of Jesus and immediately before and after and that sort of thing. Um, and they they seem to not like the directness of God. So when we see in the Old Testament God is walking in the garden, oh, that, that can't be God the Father. That's the Memra. In Aramaic, Memra means the word. Of Lord, and they they do this constantly within the story of Noah, in the story of Abraham, where he meets the three people. It isn't it isn't God; it's the memra of God that they're they're meeting. Um, now, of course, these are just later Jewish traditions; uh, they're not divinely inspired. But I think that it's indicative. It, it helps put in mind that ancient Jews recognize these this interesting characteristic of the the old testament that there is this dynamic it's not a strict straightforward monotheistic uh type type notion right it's 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 always um the extrinsic you know god alone is your god and and that sort of thing but okay there's also the notion that this infinite god uh, dwells in our midst, right? He he comes and dwells in the tabernacle. His Shekinah in Second Chronicles 
uh, chapter 6. Is, is, it's saying that in the tabernacle, God is said to dwell. His divine presence, or Shekinah, actually dwells in a, in a tent. Uh, the, the Hebrew literally says, the Hebrew word for dwell is literally he pitches his tent. Uh, and then later when King Solomon dedicates the temple, he's also uh, pitching his tent in a physical building. And and Solomon himself is saying, this is so incredible that the, the high heavens cannot contain your infiniteness and your glory. Uh, but yet here you are dwelling in this earthly building made of stones uh, in a localized place. Um, so there, there's this tension there in, in the text. Um, and on it, I would say that's consistent, possibly consistent with the Trinitarian understanding. Oh, maybe God the Father is still sitting enthroned on heaven, but Jesus is in the place. Or the Holy Spirit could be localized in the temple or that sort of thing, right? That um, we get this when, whenever God, whenever God is... So that, that's the third major argument here is that I call it playing peekaboo with God. And I've hinted at this. So God is – the book of Exodus 33 tells us that God cannot be seen. His holiness is so infinite that just the, the sight of him as sinful creatures will kill us. Um, the, this is unambiguous. You can't see God face to face and live. But, unfortunately for, for Jews, the Old Testament is filled uh, with personal encounters of God, seeing him face to face. Even in Exodus, um, the, the writer of Exodus himself says Moses and the whole assembly of Israel, the elders, saw God face to face. This is in Exodus 24. Um, they didn't die. They lived. I mean, the, the verse telling us that no one can see God and, and live came after this. Um, another interesting case is Jacob. Jacob actually wrestles with God, Yahweh. Uh, obviously, he sees him face to face. He touches him and wrestles with him and is winning against God, God until he touches his knee uh, or something like that. Um, and Jacob is so amazed at this, he calls the name of the place Peniel. Uh, so in Hebrew, Peniel means, literally means, I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. Uh, so that's in Genesis 32. Um, and then finally, another interesting case. There, there are other cases as well, but these are the, the main ones that I wanted to focus on. Abraham, he has lunch with two angels and God himself, Yahweh. It, it's, you know, Jews will say, oh, that was three angels. But it, the Hebrew text is clear. It actually says that was God himself. Um, so, yeah, the, these are incredible. This is an incredible tension that I would say is cons at the very least consistent, perhaps in this case even demonstrative, that God is in fact a complex unity. So uh, who are they seeing face to face? God the Son. Um, and I, I didn't include this in my blog, but there is this notion of the angel of the Lord. Angel means messenger and that sort of thing. So um, in the burning, the burning bush incident, um, he sees the angel of the Lord, and he has to take off his sandals. The, the ground is holy because God is present with this angel. God's whole Shekinah is present with this angel. Um, now, Jews will try to explain—I'll help David out because this isn't in my blog— but Jews will say, well, this is literally an angel that has the name Yahweh. 
Um, they call him Metatron. Um, that's their explanation of this. But I'm sorry, in the ancient Hebrew mindset, names are sacred. The, the name Yahweh, I am, belongs only to God. And a created being cannot have that name because in the ancient Near East, names were powerful indicators. That's why it was so important when God, God gave his name to Moses. Um, it, it was like a very revolutionary thing. Um, so I, I would say in this case, the better interpretation is that's Jesus in the bush. Jesus is an angel. He, angel is an, an ontological category. It's, it's, it's a functional category, right? You're a messenger of God. So God the Son is being a messenger for God the Father in this case. Um, so, yeah, that, that's an interesting thing. Um, there are also indications that the, the nature of the Messiah would be divine. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he would have the name Mighty God, uh, Everlasting Father, and that sort of thing. And, and Daniel chapter 7 is another indication with the Son of Man uh, concept, riding in the clouds of heaven. Now, now, riding in the clouds of heaven, that's a sign of divinity. Uh, the pagan god, the Canaanite pagan god, Baal, he rode on the clouds. We have texts describing him. The clouds are his chariots. Um, this is a, a dis, uh, specific or explicit divine reference. And, and these concepts are bore, taken by the Israelites and applied to God to Yahweh. Um, but yet, the Son of Man is also now coming in the clouds. And this is why we get this, the better reading of this, is that this isn't just some human. It's it's a divine, or uh, some Jews of, of Jesus' day thought it was a semi, at the very least, a semi-divine being uh, that's being portrayed to here. Well, there's a, there's a another explanation, the Christian one. It's a fully divine being. It's Jesus, God the Son. Um, and then my final case uh, for a thing in terms of the Holy Spirit. So I would say that the Old Testament treats the Holy Spirit as a person. Um, it's not just an impersonal force. So here the, the link to God is, is obvious. That That's not controversial. I can't see, like obviously it's God's Holy Spirit. Um, but is it actually a, pers a distinct person than God the Father? Um, and I think that we have various things. So he performs certain actions or experiences certain emotions that are inherent to personhood, right? He instructs people. He teaches people. Uh, he speaks through the prophets. Um, he can be grieved. He can be angered uh, and that sort of thing when he's rebelled against. Um, so I, I think these are indicative of personhood. Um, now, one thing that I'll, I'll say here uh, that'll help David, uh, because I, I want to be honest with the audience, is um, during my research, there, there are some verses that in the Old Testament do describe the Holy Spirit as an it. Uh, and this this is problematic for my understanding. It's going to when I get into part three and start describing my model of the Trinity. Uh, but even right here, just that calling the Holy Spirit an it is problematic uh, for saying that the Holy Spirit is a person. Um, and I don't really have a, a total answer for those verses. There, there are verses that clearly call him uh, a he and that sort of thing. Um, but there are also some verses that call him an it, and I can't totally swear that. That is a, a problem um, 
where I'd probably just have to say that's an error um, on the part of the the Bible authors or something. But uh, yeah, if there are Christians listening, you know, Arthur or something like that, um, yeah, if you want to explain those verses, uh, what you think, if there's an explanation uh, for that. But yeah, that essentially that that's my case for the um, Trinity. So, and in terms of the incarnation, that goes right. God, God's appearing in human form to Abraham. Uh, clearly, there are countless examples in the Hebrew Bible where God takes on human form temporarily, um, but still, He's taking on human form and He's pitching His tent. He's dwelling in that form in a localized location on Earth. Um, so that's consistent in the time of Jesus. He just did that on a permanent basis. He did the exact same thing, but on a permanent basis. Um, so yeah, I think that's my my positive case. And yeah, I think I've, I've really established it here that the Hebrew Bible does have this concept that God is, God's, a com, Yahweh is a complex entity. He's not a, a Yahid or an absolute unity and only one uh, Unitarian concept. And the incarnation is perfectly plausible with the Old Testament scriptures. So, yeah, I'll, I'll turn it over to David for his uh, counter. Well, I mean, uh, you know, Dale said it. Um, he, he, he made his case. He knocked it out of the park. We just as well pack up and go home. Except <laughs> maybe not quite so fast. Um, first of all, um, I want to go back to the very beginning beginning um, and just to say up front uh, rehash some of dis the discussion that Dale and I had off mic I'm not entirely sure what his case is um, so I think I know and since I have had the experience of being a Christian, a Trinitarian Christian I, I think I know what his case is um, but I think some clarification is in order so he's not uh, first of all, uh, he's not saying that he's made the case that God is a, uh, a quote-unquote trinity. Uh, just that God is a, uh, again, uh, scare quotes, complex being. Um, okay, so we're going to need to flesh out exactly what is meant by complex being. Um, that's going to be that's going to be a little bit of a challenge, and so I've got a few questions before attacking some of the points um, attacking maybe the wrong word um, but I mean I can't I can't really rebut until I've got a pretty good idea of what we're talking about here so uh, Dale if you don't mind me just asking some clarifying questions um, what do you mean by complex being as opposed to say a simple being Okay, so I tried, and I'm, I tried to deliberately keep that vague because, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm leading toward towards providing a philosophical model where I, I spell out uh, what I think the best model of, of making sense of this concept uh, based on the scriptural data. However, I, th I think even with the Old Testament. It, it's it's coming into place that a complex unity is not uh, it's not a unitarian concept if you don't mind because my Hebrew is a little rusty well so okay so yahid means 
Sure. And just for the audience, just so you know what that means. So remember, I said there's ichad, which means one, and there's yechid, which means one. The yechid, though, is it mean the literal translation is only one. So that's sort of like a strict Unitarian Muslim or modern Jew concept. This is the the word that Moses Maimonides. Uh, who's the the biggest figure? If you want to know what modern Judaism is, you, it started with him in the 12th century. So he uses that word to describe it. So it means an only one, uh, in the sense of a unitarian. Right. Uh, but uh, I I would actually let me let me just see if I can agree with at least the one thing that I thought I understood that you said mm-hmm. that I think I can agree with is when they talked about the oneness of God, they were never talking about God's ontology. Um, Correct. Yes. No. No one was talking about he's a he's a, uh, a you know his the nature of his being as much as um, there's only one God to worship. Um, you know whatever yeah. God is, they weren't defining God by saying God is one. I, I so I would agree with that. But that said, I think that you put too much weight. Uh, on these particular Hebrew words, because as we say, they weren't really talking about that. I don't think that was in view. So, um, you know, it's, you know, we could punt to, they just assumed, you know, that he was a simple unity. They didn't even have a concept of a complex unity, but whether they did or not, in the use of these words, that's not what they were talking about. So you can't really make a case either way, just looking at the Hebrew words. Right. So, so yeah, in the first place, uh, that section is a defensive uh, section. So it, it's it's responding to modern day Jews that will say, well, these verses prove that the Trinitarian thing couldn't be pro- couldn't be what the, what the Bible had in mind here. So, you know, in, in terms of supporting my point, I'm just bringing it back to the fact that it's consistent. But secondly, on a positive side, um, Remember, I would also add that the Old Testament provides us with a positive understanding of the complex unity in that there are distinct, um, I I was told by Tony Costa, make sure you say distinct, not separate. Um, So I'm I'm doing that to keep it clear. But we're we're, we're about to get there, I think. (laughs) Yeah, but there are distinct persons, right? and, And ancient Hebrews did. Uh, have this understanding the visible the concept of the visible and invisible gods um, you know this angel of the Lord the, the uh, not being able to see God but yet you see him face to face and you live um, so I think that uh, and with the Holy Spirit having personal attributes I, I think that we can say whatever this complex unity is it, it involves distinct persons that it's not all God the Father. And we have to be careful when we read the Old Testament. This was a revelation for me when I studied it. The word Yahweh, um, is that always referring to God the Father in the Old Testament? No, not necessarily. That's a reference to the Trinity in a lot of cases. Now, it's not, sometimes it does mean God the Father only. And you have to be careful in how you read it. But remember, Jesus himself said, I am Yahweh. Well, he, right, but Yahweh is, is the only word uh, used for God. There's also El uh, or Elohim. Elohim. Um, but that's that's not his personal name. So that's more general. Like the Baal, the the gods are El, right? It just means lords. You're, you're, but you're right. Yeah, Elohim. It's it's a yeah. Uh, granted, I I grant that. So there's uh, so I'm I'm I'm, I'm warning. Um, 
mostly against making too much of a case of specific words that aren't talking about this. And so I, I will grant your defensive case. I don't think those arguments are very good. Um, I, I think the better argument uh, on the other side is just intuitively, this is how people thought. <laughs> this is this is what they thought, and they were, you know, we can't prove that they were talking about anything else. Now, as far as your other points, though, we'll, we'll get there, but I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the idea of a complex unity, so, um, or, or a complex being. So, you believe in um, substance dualism, um, as most Christians do. So one could say, from the Christian perspective, humans are also complex unities. Sure. Uh, so in what way are you suggesting God is a complex unity in a way that's different from humans are a complex unity? Um, okay, so just based on the Old Testament text, I could say, I could say, nothing I, I could say you know his holy spirit is like is like that it's an element of him or something like that but i think with the positive points that we'll get to i, I think that does provide a little bit more whatever else his complex unity is um you know he, he has various i think god is a complex unity in that he has various attributes i'm not a medieval aristotelian like thomas aquinas where god is absolute being in itself and simplicity he you know, like Muslims and, and Christians tied themselves in knots as to God being a simple, divine divine simplicity. Um, and that has to trump having other properties or attributes. No, God's a complex unity in that he has various attributes. Secondly, with the, the unique Judeo-Christian take that I think is coming from the Old Testament with my positive case is that God is also a complex unity in that there are distinct divine persons that that share in the divine nature um that's really the wow thing that that christians go there you go that's what we're saying with the trinity we're 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 getting we're getting to this person's thing i'm just trying to i'm trying to flush out wrap my mind around uh how you are looking at complex being god versus complex being human because one would might say well we have an incarnate human uh the body and uh, we have a, a spirit uh, you know maybe not a holy spirit but a human spirit and then we've got maybe a mind which is you know some people would separate the spirit and the mind and then some people would go further and say and there's the soul which may be uh you know somehow slightly different we have all these various components making up a complex being. And so are you saying that God is a complex being in that way, or is he different from that even? So, so I know the answer, um, but I'm going to ref- I know you hate this. I, I'm going to refrain answering that until part three, because I don't think the Old Testament, give, it doesn't describe that, right? Remember, it doesn't describe God's intrinsic nature makeup so right so you're saying it could be consistent with a human style complex being as well as some other style of complex being is 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 that what you're wanting to leave the door open for 
apart from the pers- the personal arguments, yeah, it, it could also be consistent uh, with a divine united divine council, possibly. Um, so that, this is this is kind of where we're where I want to go to next because once again, I'm I it's I'm trying to understand your argument before I just launch a straw man. Because if I if I launch an argument that is not your argument, then it's just a straw man. But it's an unintentional straw man because I really don't get what you're talking about. So I don't I don't yeah. want to get accused of that, and I don't want to do a lot of unnecessary work, um, you know, uh, dispelling notions that you don't have. But I'm telling you as sincerely as I can, I don't understand the Trinity. I've never understood the Trinity, so even if we were talking about the Trinity proper, I wouldn't understand it. But even this kind of lesser version, just the complex being, it's still tough to wrap my mind around what's being discussed. So you mentioned uh, multiple persons. Can we talk persons? Sure. Um, But, okay. Um, I was going to address the divine cancel idea, but you haven't brought it up yet. So yet. It's it's okay. it's coming. Okay. <laughs> I'm, tr- right. I'm, I'm trying to take this a little bit at a time <laughs> because I gotcha. don't want to lose the audience. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, div- divine persons. Yeah. Okay. So, um, would would you say he's a complex being in that he is made up of multiple persons? Yes, okay. complex unit. What is a person? I will describe that in a, a later show. Uh, <laughs> the old, the Old Testament doesn't. Uh, okay, so I, I see the problem, but we don't need to know for the purposes of our discussion here. I need to know. <laughs> um, what I'm not going to tell you. The Old Testament doesn't tell us. So at this point, I'm I have no idea. Well, you um, use, you I'll, used I'll, the term a minute ago, and you made a positive assertion that it was multiple divine persons. So. If, would you like to re- withdraw that for now? No. He, well, no. he has personal attributes that the ancient Jews of the Old Testament period recognized to be unique to persons um, and that sort of thing, right? So they, you won't withdraw it, but you won't clarify it. Um, and so I can't comment on it. There's a there's a broader sense though that we can recognize a person um, outside of a philosophical sense, right? You would so you would recognize. Then give the me whatever Jesus. definition of person that you expect me to work with here. Sure. So uh, he was a being that had uh, certain features that were personal. He could relate to persons. Uh, he had emotions like a person. He had. Um, you know, uh, he, yeah, like he, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I haven't researched what the ancient Jewish understanding of a person was, but they, they clearly could recognize it. Um, okay. You know, so you, you said that Tony warned you to use distinct as opposed to separate, separate. Yeah. Okay. Would you say that you and I are distinct persons? Yes. And would you say that you and I are separate persons? Yes. What's the difference? Right. Um, so this gets into the divine council, right? So it's it's not just he's complex, he's a complex unity. So, so in what sense 
would these divine persons be unified? Is what you're asking. Why, why couldn't I just say, well, there's a divine council of various gods? And it sounds like you're saying that they're not, not separate persons, right? That God is not correct. They're not, right. they're not separate. If it was they're separate, different. it would be tritheism. Um, oh well, they they are they are separate persons. But the reason the reason we don't I'm going to get in. I'm not trying uh, to get you in trouble. I am trying to no, I'm well, trying to prepare to craft an argument that I just don't have enough information for. Okay. All right. So I'll just reveal this much then. So okay, there's there's a heresy called partialism okay. that we'll learn about in part three, um, and this this is the notion that God can be s separated. You know, like you can yank. Uh, Jesus out of the Trinity or something like that, and and that's, this is a heresy. No, God, God isn't composed of separable parts or, or that sort of thing. It, it's impossible for any member of the Trinity to be taken away from the other. Um, so that this is why Tony is telling me to use distinct rather than separate, because it might, even though there's nothing wrong with saying it's a separate person, uh, he's anticipating that some people will think I'm arguing for this heresy of partialism and I'm, and I'm not um, so that's all I'm trying to but in terms of the Old Testament what would unify it because that's that's you know other stuff that we're going to get to in future blogs but in terms of the Old Testament it's the divine name these guys these divine persons are called Yahweh that cannot apply to a divine council of you know like the Canaanite gods they're sitting on a council and uh, you know, there are lesser deities, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more than just these beings have the divine nature, um, and they're totally separated from each other. They're independent beings. There is a, a unification that divine person is Yahweh. Okay. So how's that different from my non-divine person? You know, I am David. Um, uh, let's say my body is, you know, body and my spirit is spirit but we're all david um we can't be separated uh so you said that god would be different from that somehow and i'm trying to figure out what you mean you're saying they're different persons that are inseparable i i imagine you wouldn't say the different components of myself that i just named are not different persons yeah, correct. Human humans are unitarian. Oh, okay. So then, well, let's let's just go a little bit further. Let's just say I had a particular type of brain defect, um, or formation. I don't even know if it's right to call it a defect that that allowed me multiple persons or personalities, uh, which is which is a thing that happens with humans. Some humans are, in fact, complex persons. There, there is there is more than one of them in there uh, as far as distinct personalities. They're not separate, as you're talking about, but they are distinct. Would God be uh, a person with split personality syndrome? Yeah. Um, so, again, this is getting into part three territory where we make sense, where we provide a model. I'm not trying to push where I can't go, but once again, I'm, I'm just trying to understand what the claim is. So Okay, so yeah, so all I'll say is, as a teaser is personalities are not the same as personhood. Uh, within the confines of the Old Testament, um, 
that couldn't be the case because look G, uh, God the Son or you know Jesus if we're if we're saying that's what we think the the visible God is uh, that portrays is in a localized area all at the same time simultaneously God the Father is filling the heavens so there there are properties that are I'm getting philosophical again but there there are, there are contradictory uh, properties that are that are obtaining for the separate for the distinct persons that would not be the same as just a schizophrenia right like if I'm a schizophrenic all my personalities are in that one place at the same time um, so so yeah I would say even from the Old Testament we can we can rule out God being a schizophrenic so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna just try to make my case that may or may not be attached to yours but I did want to show the audience why I said what I said in my blog read the blogs kids um, I, I'm, I wasn't trying to be mean to Dale <laughs> I, I simply there there are limits on how much any of us can comment until we have more information of what Dale is talking about so that said let me can I just before you begin, like just, since you brought that up, just to explain my reasoning approach, because I was contemplating, I was really thinking, would it be best to start with what is my model, and then go and then do shows on the scriptural data? Um, and I decided against that because I, I think it's best to go by the actual process, right? First, you deal with what is the raw scriptural data? What what does it say? You, you don't have your idea and then try to read that into the Bible. I wanted to show that the proper hermeneutical process is let's start with the scriptural data. We, we don't have a model. We're just taking what the, the divine text gives us. And then afterwards, only then do we come up with various models to make sense of it so that that's why i'm but you are making a conclusion though that what you're that the text is consistent with a particular conclusion that you have so you you're not it's not completely separate from a conclusion right just reading the text and contemplating it you're reading the text and then connecting it to an idea that you have and so in order to do that i need to see some of the connective tissue um so it's it's not pure hermeneutics as you're describing it here but um you know once again i you know sure. that, that's I, I'm, I'm trying to play along as best i can um sure and, and that's right like obviously i do i i've already studied this so i i do have my end goal in mind but i'm trying to illustrate as best we can what is the proper process so okay. that, that's all i'm trying to do okay so let me let me just take two of your points and um see if I can, if not dismantle them, uh, remantle them, uh, put, put them in a slightly different light, because I think that you're looking at things as if to say, well, this is the only way it could be. Um, and I don't think that is the case. Uh, so uh, a couple of things. I don't think that you can say that the Jews were thinking about God in some kind of complex unity. I also don't think you can uh, say that they were talking about God as a simple unity. I just don't think ontology was the question at all. Uh, so mm -hmm. that said, you know, the things that you point out that seem to be talking about a complex unity, I would, I would bring up uh, something I think you mentioned in your blog, you didn't in your recap, uh, but the wisdom 
uh, of God, for instance, just as an example. So uh, the way these particular Jews at this particular time and uh, quite frankly surrounding nations would have thought uh, was, you know, per, in, in terms of personifications of things, you know, the personification of good, the personification of evil, you know, these things must have some kind of something that personifies them. I think we would call that uh, platonic um, Platonic forms of things, um, ideas being expressed in tangible, perfect tangible ways throughout the universe. And so, uh, you know, even if you're talking about one God, you're talking about, you know, God's word, uh, that, that could also be understood as, you know, them seeing a personification uh, and speaking almost poetically about that um, rather than tangibly. Now, they might also have been thinking about it tangibly too. God's word personifies itself as something different. But I don't see why we should look at that and think of that as um, anything particularly special because one could argue they also did the same thing with God's wisdom. And yet I never hear uh, Christians talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Wisdom. Uh, And yet, I, I think that case could be made if you look at how wisdom is sometimes the, the personification language of wisdom uh, in the Bible. So uh, the fact that Christians don't do that, uh, and by the way, the fact that Jews don't do that, um, is indicative uh, of what I think is an example that, that Dale and other Christians are starting with a conclusion that we've got this, these three members of the Godhead, and we're going to read that back into the text, and we're not going to read any other members of the Godhead into the text, which could easily be read there if, you, if you're reading the Bible consistently. So I, I think that it could be personification language of, of superstitious people, or it could just be poet, poetic language. Uh, and I don't think that either one of those are ruled out uh, you know, I don't. I don't think that we have enough yet. Uh, just looking at the text to conclude, they're talking about a, a strict uh, ontology of God's complex nature. I, I don't think that we have enough for that. Now, as far as the second uh, point, well, you know, God seems to be uh, incarnating all over the place. Um, so surely this is an example of you know multiple incarnation of God. No, I don't think so. Once again, I think this is consistent with uh, how people uh, of that time, and even later than that time, thought in terms of uh, royalty, um, you know, in, imperial kingliness, if you will. You don't even have to think in terms of a god for this. Uh, if a king sends a representative to a land uh, with an order and a seal, that's the king. That, that representative is the king. Um, and... I mean, it's it's as simple as that. And so when God sends an angel, it is not, in fact, I, uh, well, there, there might be some debate here, and we'd have to get into some scholarship that I'm not prepared to do right now, but I, I don't think that that is inconsistent with the idea of saying God uh, is here, that you spoke to God. Uh, if God sent a representative that you know uh, came straight out of the presence of God, that's God. Um, and so, yeah, some, sometimes, um, you know, can, can I rule out the idea that God incarnated 
uh, at times into these angel forms? No, I can't. But I also don't think that you can rule out that these angels would have been considered God just in the way that they considered uh, a high, a close representative of a royal being as being that being. Okay. Okay. Um, so in terms of wisdom, um, believe it or not, uh, skeptics, skeptical scholars would say it's the opposite, uh, just, just as an FYI. So uh, Dr. Nathan McDonald, who's um, not a friend to my brand of Christianity at all, but he, he would say, look, originally uh, the ancient Jews did personify something like the wisdom goddess, a separate, a separate goddess, like me and you are separate. Uh, but then through the mono, monotheizing trend, uh, then they poeticized that and made it a, a property of God or something like that. And, and you know, in, in the the book, uh, where where does it talk about the wisdom, the wisdom literature again? Is it Proverbs or I, I, Song of Solomon? I didn't, I didn't prep for it. Sorry. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah, it's, it's actually the skeptics would be actually saying the opposite of, of what you're saying. But um, yeah, it, Christians do right. They they do take this wisdom uh, and they say, well, that's the logos. That's Jesus. Um, but that that's obviously reading in New Testament understanding. But it it would be consistent with you know this wisdom clearly is a divine attribute of God and it's it's speaking of it in in personal terms um, it's debatable because it's in poetic form so I don't think you could press it and say well that proves the Trinity or that or that sort of or that God is a complex unity in the same way I would take the other verses to do that but um, certainly we, we that's consistent with a Christian understanding like the, the you could read that verse to go, oh, that's divine wisdom. The divine wisdom is the Logos, the Word of God. The Word of God is Jesus. Right, but the, the particular um, Christian so I, reading I would that. be to try to to conflate wisdom with a recognized part of the Godhead. So they would say, well, that's just another word yeah. for this other thing. And it, I would say yeah. if they were being truly consistent, no, they would have a fourth member of the Godhead. And in, in fact, I think that... Um, there was a time when some people did. I think the reason wisdom got kicked out of the Godhead is because wisdom was uh, feminine. <laughs> so, um, again, not prepared to make yeah. that case well, today, but uh, you 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 have probably heard this before. <laughs> so, yeah, it no, will Jewish, not come as a the Holy Spirit is feminine too. It, it's it, there, or the Shekinah is feminine. It's it seemed to be God's feminine aspect by mystics, even to this day, modern Jewish mystics. Um, so, so yeah, there, there is uh, some in terms of point. Um, I actually do remember a doctor Shabbat to three. So you you could say, well, isn't this a fourth, a fourth person? Why why does wisdom have to be consistent with the Trinity? And and I guess uh, strictly going by the Old Testament. I'm not sure I could rule that out, to be honest. Um, I have New Testament reasons for, and Christian reasons for, for doing that. But uh, yeah, I'd need to, that's something that I think I would need to think about. Um, so that's a good point. Sure. Um, all you would be your second point you about made, just just real quick, if you if you grant that point though even a little bit, then what you're granting is yeah, the Jews could be wrong. Be 
they could be wrong about the nature of God, in which case I don't know why we should care um, what they thought about the nature of God. Jews could be wrong? Yeah, they could be wrong about the nature of God. If if they were suggesting that wisdom was a... I'm not sure I understood that. Yeah, if so we were breaking up a little bit. I don't know if the people listening to this will hear this or not, or if this is just Skype for us, but in case you guys are listening and you're wondering why we're talking strangely we're, there's there's some breakage here but at any rate um yeah i what i'm saying is if if uh the jews thought wisdom was a personification of god and christians say no jews you're wrong about that then all you're saying is that the jews are wrong about the nature of god and so I don't know why we should, why we should care what they thought about, you know, whether God was a complex being or not. Well, well, Christians agree with the Jews for in the first place, right? They they do say that that wisdom is Jesus. Uh, so they do believe that it. wouldn't actually be a, an agreement. Uh, that would be a conflation. That wouldn't that wouldn't be an agreement. They do. Um, but obviously, at some point, Jews dis- disagree. The, the Jews today deny the Trinity. They, they deny that God is a complex unity. But so what? Um, I don't care about the opinions of modern modern Jews. We know why they have those opinions. Well, so no, no, I'm not talking what about matters that. that's, is the that's, old no, no, that's a straw man. I'm talking about the Jews who wrote the Bible. I think the, the ancient Jews who wrote the Old Testament did see. Uh, sorry. Yeah, no, I was. I'm talking about okay. the Jews. Uh, what, the Bible. What's the problem with this? Right. So they they wouldn't have known about Jesus. Um, okay. So they don't equate wisdom with Jesus. That's the main difference. Well, I'm just saying that their their God head what? has some different. I don't see that as a problem or an their, their Godhead has some different persons in it than the Christian Godhead, and what the Christians are doing is trying to harmonize those and make them out to be the same thing, and they're not. I, I think that so. Okay, so so ancient Jews did actually conflate. I'm not sure about the wisdom one, but they did actually conflate the. There's two two gods that they saw. There's the invisible God, God the Father, and then there is this visible God. So they they did do the same thing that Christians do um, in terms of these incidents. They they saw that there is this bifurcation of God. Um, you know, God the Father and God the Son, as we would say, as Christians would reinterpret that. So yeah, I don't think that's an issue. I I don't know if they saw wisdom as representing visible God. I don't think that's what the ancient Jews had in mind, so I, I would need to think about think about that in terms of how the ancient Jews would have saw it. But it, to me, it's just, yeah, they, they didn't think about, the Old Testament Jews weren't thinking about, okay, how many numbers, let's pin it down to, is there three or five or that sort of thing, right? They weren't asking the ontological questions. Right, so from their perspective, there could have been a hundred... There could have been a hundred distinct so persons. We're, we're just saying, well, is it consistent? And a Christian 
or, and that they're just not mentioned or something uh, in the Bible. That's possible. Um, one might try to argue that what we're only warned, if, if there were such persons, all such persons would have been mentioned in the Old Testament. Maybe one could argue that. So since there aren't a hundred persons mentioned, um, therefore we can limit it to us. If there's three or if it's a fourth person, then there's a quadrilogy. Okay, so so I, I wanted to, before I forget, uh, David, you, you also mentioned a point about the majestic plural. Uh, and this is usually a, a positive argument that Christians will say, well, see, that proves God's a complex unity or, or the Trinity or something like that. Um, so what I'm talking about here is that in like the book of Genesis, the creation account, they'll say God not a, a Unitarian concept of God. He's not an only one. Um, and they'll, they'll present this as proof. People like uh, Dr. Tony Costa, he's, he still maintains this. And if you check out the sources, he goes into great detail as to why he thinks this is a, a great, still a great argument. And, and I have to admit that in earnest, that this is an argument worthy of consideration, even though I purposely didn't use it. I'm iffy about it. So here's the reason yes, as a proof for a complex unity. In the first place, uh, we have other... T this is an ancient Near Eastern custom. It's, it's kin sort of akin to the royal we. It's, it's not necessarily speaking to the ontological nature, but it's, it's uh, magnifying God's greatness. Uh, and, and we have texts where other cultures do this for kings. They do it for other gods. It's, it's the highness. It... it you know, and even in the Bible, there's always this consistent standard. So the Akkadians did it, the Sumerians did it. Um, and look, it first refers to them in the plural, and then right afterwards, it goes back to talking about them in the singular. And the Bible does this in these verses, you know, let us make God in our image, but then it go, right after it goes back to referring to God in the singular. So I don't think we can press press this i'm i'm iffy on it. it it might be an indication but i don't think we can press it as though it proves that proves god is a complex unity because it refers to an us it, it could just be this device known as the majestic plural um however so, here, so we'll, here's one we'll get thing to that we'll get to that okay. more i do have something but here's to say one, about that. well here's one one point that i think is really important so Dr. Michael Brown, for example, he he also agreed. I, I'm on his side. He, uh, you know, he would agree with me that we can't really press this uh, majestic plural as proof for a complex unity or a trinity or something like that. But there is an interesting question for you skeptics to ponder: um, What is the origin? Where did the where did we get this concept that the use of a majestic plural signifies highness or? up to the heights of heaven and greatness and that sort of thing. It, you know, young earth creationists might try to say, well, there's all these ideas about the flood because there actually was a flood and that spread. Well, maybe God is a complex unity and through Adam and Eve, we they referred to him. Highness came to represent, um, you know, the majestic plural because uh, God was a complex unity and human beings knew that at first and then it became corrupted over time to where they would apply it to human beings and that I, I can't prove that's the case. Like I said, I don't use this as a 
positive argument itself, but I, it's something I find, to ponder. I find that a trivial idea, but I it I I can't. Okay. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to lose time, even chasing it. Um, chase it in the comments, folks. Um, I want to get back to the uh, idea, though, that of the of the royal representative uh, more than a royal plural. Um, God sends oh. angels to okay. earth and they represent him and to the people who see them they are God not that they are Yahweh uh, ontologically but they are Yahweh representatively uh, so that so that's a concept that's not in the Bible at least not in the way that you've described it um, so, so yeah, they are Elohim. It would describe king as Elohim, or these angels as a you know a lord or something like that. But it's 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 not okay. So so put it this way. So in scholarship, it's called Yahweh exclusivism. So the, the ancient Hebrews saw Yahweh in a class all by himself. He alone is God in that class and. and has the divine identity, as Richard Bauckham would put it. And remember, I outlined the two way, two fundamental ways um, that they saw God, Yahweh, as being exclusively God. Um, sure, d God has divine representatives. He has angels, uh, or what you call the divine uh, thing, the divine um, council, right? Uh, and there are certain texts. Now, with the exception of one or two, I haven't gotten to the council yet. Just to just to be clear, I I, I plan to get there too. I'm I'm just talking about okay, the so representative uh, of he sends a messenger to do a thing or say a thing to another human. To that other human, that messenger is God. Just so just, just as it would be with a king, the king sends his right hand man. Um to uh, do a thing in another one of his lands that is equivalent to the king visiting that land and making that order if you attack that man or reject that man you have caused a war because you have rejected the king no, no one is making a distinction of oh well that wasn't the king that was just the king's man right so, so there are Jewish understandings so like Moses is said if, if you're uh, standing or sitting on the right hand of God, you're. This is almost, uh, at least in uh, the late Second Temple period. You know, Bart Ehrman will will argue uh, this. Okay, well, that's a topic for New Testament things. But right, so there are representatives that are seen as representing God and, and God's will. That that's undeniable from an Old Testament perspective. But you go beyond. I'm, I'm sorry, it's just wrong. They don't see the representatives as God or Yahweh. No, none of these representatives take on God's unique name. And you need to understand how, how important a name—I assume you know how important a name was for the ancient Near Eastern mindset, right? Like, it, it's not just— sure, oh, It's it it very important to all superstitious um, right. uh, uh societies that we know of i don't i don't know of one where names weren't important you know knowing a person's name you can capture their soul um you yeah. know all, all kinds of things associated with that so yes i understand that name was important here um 
So my, my point is none of them, not, none of these representatives get to be incorporated under the name Yahweh in, in the same way that the visible God does or wisdom does or the Holy Spirit can adopt the name Yahweh or something. Right. I mean, uh, what I would question, though, is that we can look at the instances of, of these names in the Bible. Like, for instance, one, one of the arguments, um, just this is a translation uh, kind of argument. Whenever you see the word Lord, with a capital L, it means angel. But when you see Lord in all capitals, then mm-hmm. it means Jesus. Um, and oh. I, I, think, I think this is just giving too much credence to the idea that you have somehow, you know, the exact words uh, and tenses, uh, you know, passed down by God or so, that somehow these, these various words used for the name of God weren't themselves uh, tra- matters of translation by someone who wrote them down. Uh, so I don't, I don't actually um, give much credence to the argument that, oh, but this one is Lord versus Lord. Okay. Um, so first of all, you should. Um, but I don't think that the way whoever gave you that argument is just wrong about the, what the words mean. But okay, so, so Lord with a cap, Lord when it's translated Elohim from, from the word Elohim, uh, that can refer to angels. It can refer to God. It can refer to earthly kings. It just means Lord. It's like when we say, hello, my Lord, or something like that. Um, so there, there's not, oh, that only refers to angels. I don't know who told you that, but that's just mistaken and wrong. Well, no, um, no, 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 no. I did, so okay. that's, a, that's a misapprehension of what I was trying to say. I'm saying in the Bible, when you see Lord and it's referring to one of these messenger beings, if it's a lowercase l, it's just an angel. I mean, uh, uh, just a capital L, it's just an angel. Whereas if it's all caps, then that's a different Hebrew word. And it's referring to the person of God himself. Uh, it's trying to make that distinction. I'm not saying that Lord always means angel. I'm just saying whenever it's re- an angel is referred to as Lord in the Bible, that that's the distinction yeah. being made. I don't yeah. believe that that is, I don't, I don't believe that we can know that. Okay, so so we can. Uh, th- this is basic scholarship. Um, uh, okay, well, yeah, we'll just I guess the scholarship it's would in, say indisputable. <laughs> it's it is re- like I don't even think skeptics deny this um, because I I know of none that would question what this distinction, right? So they are correct in in doing the all capital lord that that is yahweh that is being translated that is god's divine identifiable name so that that does only reply to the godhead or sometimes god the father um depending on but what i'm what i'm saying is i don't think that we could because we don't have original autographs of this stuff and so when the person who wrote that down as the name of god you know, maybe that's what he thought it should, how he thought it should be translated. Um, but we don't, mm-hmm. we don't, what I'm saying is we, there's no way to know whether that is actually the, the mm-hmm. you know, the word for Lord handed down by God. And you're making a case based on the, the precise words used at, in any given moment. And I just don't think that we can do that. I think that we can 
look at the literature of the Bible, though, and uh, take what we know about the societies of, of the time, the literature of the time, uh, and make at least the um, case that Lord can mean, um, uh, or, or that a messenger of God could refer to God. I'm not saying, I'm not ruling it out that it couldn't refer to uh, the divine being, but I'm also saying that you can't rule it out. That it just means that this person recognizes that this is God. This this representative of God should be listened to in the same way that you listen to God. I, I don't think that we can say more than that from from those. So you know, when when uh, Jacob wrestled with an angel, I think it's absurd, absurd to say that oh no he wrestled with the actual god god is an all-powerful being he is an all-powerful being jason can't jason jacob can't wrestle with an all-powerful being are you kidding that's that's an incoherent idea it's just utterly incoherent so um you know if you say god God has the power to rest to fake it right he can rest it's not saying he wrestled with all of his power to defeat Jacob and just couldn't. It's it, Jacob isn't an iron chariot. I mean, come on. So uh, well, <laughs> that was meant to be a joke. Yeah, no, no, very <laughs> funny. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't, I, I think um, once again, uh, you've got to understand the soft nature of my rebuttal because I don't fully understand your case. I am saying that if you were suggesting that it could mean you know, this stronger thing that there's, you know, God is incarnating into other things. I'm just saying it could also mean that this is a representative of God uh, that people recognize as um, the authority of or presence of God. You know, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't God, but, but it was a representative of his authority, None, okay, nonetheless. So, so, so here's why that's not... So uh, setting aside the translation issue, which I, I didn't get to respond to, but look, that's not true because Abraham, in his case, he didn't meet God, all three gods. He distinguished the two angels from Yahweh himself in the account where he had lunch with them. Then he sent the two angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Yahweh stayed behind and talked to him uh, and left. So it's distinguishing Yahweh from lesser creatures or angels and that sort of thing. It, it's it's not the case that, oh, if you're a representative of Yahweh, you get to take on his name. Um, even even modern Jews would, would, with all of their things, would strongly disagree with you today. And, and they would say, no way, that there's only one angel that's special. That's Metatron. Only he gets to adopt Yahweh's name. And, and that's explains the visible God or something like that. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just... I'm... There's only so far down the rabbit hole I can go here. I'm not debating fairies and Harry Potter and uh, well, the, every the every, every bit of Jewish superstition. I'm I'm sorry, I can't. Okay, but the, can't the point stands in the old in the Old Testament. They they distinguish, right? If what you are saying is true, that you become a representative, therefore you get to be called God, then they would say all three of these people were. Yahweh's or, or whatever. Well, I don't. Um, think, I don't think it's inconsistent to uh, to write that. But I think in that particular part of the story, there was a reason that the person wanted to distinguish between the angel and the God. So I mean, that's. I'm not. I'm not saying that your view can't be uh, correct. 
Okay. I am simply saying that your view is not the only obvious view, and sometimes another uh, view is correct. And we just have to, we have to get a little bit more specific and a little bit more definitional um, in, in order to in order to do a better job of this thing. So, yeah, sometimes uh, when the representative of the king comes, it's the king, and sometimes the king himself wants to go talk to you. Um, and it's and it's proper to say in both times I spoke with the king. I well, yeah, it's, I, I saw that the king came to visit me. Um, it's proper to say that whether the king came to visit you or the king sent his right hand man to have you sign a document. Okay, well, I would just say from from an Old Testament perspective, that's not proper. That that's not the way they did it. Maybe. English people talk like that or something, but that's not the way the ancient Hebrews who wrote the Old Testament would have thought about it. Now, um, this is assuming your point. Yes, you're correct that I'm assuming the text has been preserved properly, right? Since the Dead Sea Scrolls or that sort of thing. Um, We do know that there there is the use of this name from archaeology, but obviously we just have bits and pieces. So you, you need the text to be able to create the distinction that I'm trying to. Like, I couldn't argue against what you're saying just based off the archaeological evidence that mentions Yahweh or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I guess so I, I just this have is, to assume this is, this, here, is a very technical, this is a very technical argument. I, I, I get this, and I don't want people to get lost in this. Uh, yeah. neither, neither one of us are crazy here. I mean, I, this is not where I can use my signature batshit crazy uh, line. I'm sorry, right. people. Right. Maybe maybe we can get that in part two. Oh, my goodness. Um, but <laughs> you know, I, I'm in shock. So I actually am at the table. I'm not ridiculous for once. Right. But then again, your point hasn't been fleshed out enough. So once it's fleshed out, then... Uh, then we then can it, put the tag on it, but okay. <laughs> but right now, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit too too loose to to get any label. Um, so you yeah. you're and, and about- I think that's that's a reflection of the the Hebrew text. The Hebrew te- the Old Testament itself is a little bit loose. It doesn't spell things out uh, about God's nature in the same way the New Testament does. Even the New Testament will find is a bit loose. It's not as it's not a philosophical it, it is, argument. Uh, yeah, I don't think the New Testament actually helps. But um, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so let, let's let's circle back around to one other point before we move forward. The royal we. Uh, this will help us trans transition to another of of my points. Um, and, and just before we go, just for the audience. So yeah, my case is contingent upon. I'm I'm just let's just assume that the text, the Old Testament text that we have, has been preserved properly from the originals maybe we can debate that for another another show or something but yeah my argument is assuming that for the sake of argument right um dale's argument assumes the text is divine in some way and i do not i assume that the text is literature and so i'm talking about the text strictly as a piece of literature um so that said um royal we uh this is this is problematic uh i think uh, because it does speak to culture, I don't. I don't think it speaks to theology at all. So you kind of have to say, well, culturally, uh, the people who who wrote "Let Us Make Man," you know, maybe 
sometime in you know one one thousand or eleven hundred or whenever whenever you want to date that um, <clears throat> you you would have to know something about the person who wrote it, and we don't and the culture uh, that wrote it, and we really don't um, oh. and so it's it's kind of hard to say what they would have meant by us and so I would argue that the most straightforward reading of uh, of the royal we uh, in pretty much every time you see it in scripture is to take it literally I think that we actually meant we more than one of us and the reason why I say that is because we have plenty of examples in the Bible where there's more than one so God is not um, in the Old Testament depicted as being alone in heaven He's, he's not alone in heaven. It, he, he is depicted like a king, you know, surrounded by a royal court. And I'm not saying that the other people around him are other gods. Maybe we might say demigods. But they're not, they're not other gods equal to him in his court. But he does have a court. <laughs> and uh, he has advisors and, you know, the, uh, scouts and so forth and so when he says let us make man he could be talking to the same people that we see later in Genesis who uh, are informing him about the um, you know what's going on with the Tower of Babel or he could be talking about the same us that um, you know when they figured out what to do with old King Ahab or whoever it was I mean there's there are plenty of or, or it could be the same us that we see in Job uh, when Satan is standing around uh with a you know with a royal court so um ev everywhere we look closely in the old testament we don't see a solitary figure sitting on a throne in an empty room uh heaven is occupied and the royal court is occupied and i suspect that when god says us he means us it's it's the us that we think it means Okay, um, so this this is interesting. Cause I, as a Christian, I could be tempted to say, take advantage of you and say, okay, uh, if you're going to give me that as a good argument, then I'll I'll take it. And that take, take it proves that. <laughs> take well, well, no, because I I got to be truthful, and I I, I think that so scholarship uh, we do know about the culture. Um, we, we have other ancient Near Eastern cultures where the exact same form is used, right? And it it always goes, starts with the plural, then it goes into the singular. And the Bible's following this formula perfectly. The, the, there's an ancient Akkadian text where it's describing the king in this way. And uh, there's a Sumerian text where it's describing things this way. I think there's a Ugarit text as well, but I need to look that one up. Um, <clears throat> So we scholar scholars recognize the form and, and they know from the context that it's it's not um, it's not meant literally uh, at least on a balance of probabilities. Now, like, like I said, there are still Dr. Tony Costa. There are many Christian apologists that s still use this, and I'll provide his source. He, he's familiar with the, the biblical scholarship. Um, he keeps with me on, on this. He would agree with you that, yes, this is the Trinity. But, yeah, no, so, no, no. So I didn't I say it was the Trinity. I didn't even say it was a complex no, no, being. It's, it's I just a, said... It's a multiplicity. Yeah, there's there's more than one guy hanging around. Um, but, no, we're not talking about the nature. I'm just saying 
Plural means plural. And the reason, once again, the reason I say that, I'm not pointing to Hebrew words or ancient scholarship. I'm pointing to the text itself and the, and the um, weight of the text in the Bible itself. So that's all I got, people. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Um, right, but it's, but it's important to understand. So, so, what, that here some so when I'm pointing oh, to the when I'm pointing to the biblical text, it's you know don't just wave that off. That mm-hmm. I'm pointing to. I, I think I mentioned three distinct places where where God is actually where you can actually see that there's a multiplicity of beings, and so us can mean us. And I think that to say that it means sure. something else, you would actually have to make a better case. Uh, that in this instance, he only meant himself as a solitary being, as opposed to those other instances where there were other beings hanging around. Right. So, so yes, in the first place, yeah, us can can and does mean us in the Bible. It doesn't in this specific context, in this particular use. The, the scholars have good reason for this, right? And so in, in the first place, why does it follow this form? Why does it go to the singular? It should be still referring to it in the plural, if plural people are doing this. Um, in the second place, even in the case of the particular writer of Genesis, uh, which teaches a doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, God, God alone is existing and he creates light. Um, there, there wasn't this heavenly host. God creates that. Uh, that's the Old Testament biblical perspective. So there couldn't be an us uh, before, in your sense of the of the word, taking the text of Genesis specifically in in context. Well, I would just disagree with that. I, so, I so there are reasons. I would say that neither you or I could prove our case beyond what we've said here, because you, now you're 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 basing it on kind of the timing of when God created the heavenly host, and we don't know that. Um, so I, my assumption, and I will go ahead and uh, acknowledge this as an assumption, assumption going in, is by the time we see in the beginning God, uh, the first words of the Bible, uh, that, that the heavenly hosts and all of that other stuff was already there, uh, and that the angels were already there, and that, in fact, we had already had the drama of Satan and the fall and so forth. And so the beginning there doesn't represent to any kind of beginning from God's perspective. It's just the beginning of this universe. Uh, but that there would have, in fact, already been the heavenly host. So you're, you're, it sounds like you're suggesting that, no, we <clears throat> don't have that yet. Uh, in which case I would, I would ask, well, when, when do we get that? But, um, but I would, yeah, I would just uh, say, you can't prove, you can't prove your case and I can't prove you're wrong, but I, I think that more people would agree with me than you on that particular point. I got I got nothing beyond that. Well, yeah, we'll deal with it when I get into the doctrine of Caraccio Nihilo, because uh, I promise Arthur I will be doing that that show after I'm done with the Trinity and that sort of thing. Um, okay, so all right, so yeah, I did I did have a sick. Okay. Yeah. Oh, um, I don't know. Have you? So you brought up this heavenly host right and let me let me just let me me ask you to put that on hold for a moment because i the reason i brought up the royal we in the first place was to segue into uh, um another important part of of the discussion so let me put that out there and you can decide which one you want to comment on um 
but I, I need to pay off the, the segue here. Um, and so the, the reason why it's why I invited you to go ahead and use <laughs> um, my argument um, was because I don't think it helps you. Yes, I do believe that um, there was a host. Um, and this gets into uh, part of the nature of what you mean by um, a complex being. So there are plenty of places where you could read. I, I suppose you could read it your way and say God is a complex being, or you could read it in that uh, God is a host of beings, a simple host, as opposed to a complex unity. Um, but what we what we both agree on is that it wasn't just you know one butt in a chair, and that's all that the universe can it contained outside of this earth. Okay, so so in terms of my point, I think I can I, I I think I could concede everything you're saying about the us and what you're saying now, and it proves my point because I I'm just trying to prove that the the Trinitarian doctrine or or this notion of God as a complex unity, um, as I've semi-defined it, right? He's multiple, he's uh, distinct persons um, in unity of being or something like that. Um, you're saying that could be a valid reading, and that that's all I require for my claim to work. Um, so I, I could be happy with that. Um, I, I guess what you're getting into, so so we have to be honest about the Old Testament and, and the nature of the monotheism that was at play. Um, so as I said, right, we all agreed that they didn't have an, they weren't thinking philosophically in terms of the ontological nature. Um, of God. They weren't asking the question, what is God? They were asking, who is God? Um, and there are texts. So there, there are three. So I'm, I'm taking this. This is from a, a scholar uh, who's, again, not, not a friend of Fundy Christians or anything like that. But John Sawyer uh, wrote an article that I found helpful called Biblical Alternatives to Monotheism. And he classifies in the Old Testament, there are basically three types of texts. Um, and he, he uses this to disprove the enlightenment notion of strict monotheism or unitarian monotheism. And he says, look, there's a small group of texts in which monotheism is explicit. So these come usually in later texts, like the prophets. Uh, so in Deutero-Isaiah. I would agree with uh, that so, mostly, by the way. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to grant some of that even before you finish. I think that they did get to monotheism eventually. They didn't start there. Okay, and and bear in mind though. Uh, so John Sawyer disagrees with that. He doesn't believe in an. Ev he, he's trying to refute that there's an evolutionary development from polytheism to monotheism that developed. He he thinks it was more of a mixture. Um, and, and again, this isn't like a, a biased Christian. This is just a secular scholar. Um, so his notion is that there was this mixture, and you can detect these trends throughout the Bible and. So, yeah, and he, he gives three different types of texts, and he says there's a second group of texts, which, although not originally monotheistic, so this is sort of the, the wisdom thing that you were talking about, have, under the influence of Deuteronomic texts, been uh, interpreted as such. And then there's the third category of texts, which is the most problematic or embarrassing for modern Christians and that sort of, and these are seem to be blatant polytheistic texts that seem to endorse the existence of other pagan gods or that sort of thing. Speak as though they're they're real. Yeah. 
Um, but John, and those have to be admitted, there, there are these such texts. But John Sawyer says, look, there, there is this, throughout all of these texts, even in the blatant polytheistic ones, there, there is a monotheizing trend that's going. So they, they, scholars will call this Yahweh exclusivism. Yahweh is on a scale. He's beyond what these, these guys are not divine beings or gods. L- later Jews would call them demonies, right? They're demonic entities and that sort of thing. But I, I don't think the early period during the monarchic period, pre-Babylonian exile, they, they were polytheists. The Bible itself claims they struggled with polytheism versus this monotheizing trend. Um, it, it wasn't the whitewashed Sunday school version where, oh, ev- everyone knows God exists, and then, oh, for a couple years we dilly-dally or whatever. There, there was this mixture, a weird mixture in the, in the uh, monarchic period, and, and the Bible, the Old Testament literature is re- reacting against this in different ways and trying to say, no, God alone. For, so, you know, sometimes it, it describes this in a way that seems to support polytheism that says, look, these other gods are nothing compared to God, where there are other texts that are stronger in Isaiah that says these things are just uh, stone. You can cr- crash them on the ground. They're, they're nothing. The, the nothingness is, is the technical term they, they use, the nothing texts. Um, but throughout all of this, there's this unifying theme where they're monotheizing, and Yahweh is exclusive. He he alone is God, uh, in the terms of the Godhead. Uh, his heavenly council, they are beneath him. They they don't dictate terms. Apart from one or two texts, God is never taking advice from his council. He is telling them and enacting it. There are one or two occasions, right? There's Satan and Job, which, again, Job, it's 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 could be not literal, slide to that though i mean we can say that about anything this is that's at least one place where it looks like god is taking advice right but that you would have to be aware that how do you interpret that text okay, and now, i don't but now you're just theologizing at that point i i'm just looking at oh, the literature no. Since when am I not allowed to to do that? And well, not like not in. I mean, so you're just begging the question. Then I mean, if you're if you're going to stop doing hermeneutics and just do theology, great. But hermeneutics, no, but that, that's hermeneutics is a literary um, um, art, and when you do theology, then you're just uh, superseding the the hermeneutic you're superseding the literature and you're just saying okay th- this presumptive thing is true and you're kind of reading it back i mean right now we don't have any reason to say uh, at least from the literature that uh, this story of satan and job was was not literal and, and until we had that reason then i don't i'm not sure why why you would bring that up other than to say it's uncom- it's uncomfortable and it's a way for me to get rid of it no, but we we do have reasons, right? Remember, Lydia provided them on the show. She provided certain reasons that we can identify the genre of Job as as not being history in the same way Second Chronicles is. Or it's not that genre. So I, I don't. I, there honestly, I don't. I don't recall. I don't recall that segment on the Lydia McGrew show. I didn't listen to that in prep for this show. So I. Um, no, neither did I. But by the way, I just remember it. But um, yeah. So okay. So 
we can agree that, yeah, that there are a couple texts that indicate God is interacting. Another one is the lying spirit thing. But the vast bulk of all the texts don't speak this don't but, speak but this you way. Only need, you only need one. I mean, you, we don't get every interaction uh, in heaven. We don't get every interaction, you know, with what goes on in the White House. Uh, sometimes Trump might listen to his advisors, um, and he might start a sentence with, we're uh, setting out this policy and then switch to, I'm going to do this or that. I don't, I don't think you can make too much out of that, and um, I, I think you're making a meal out of a crumb. Um, well, I'm just saying this is one of one of the indications that so I can actually take these texts literally. I, I I personally am not totally persuaded that Job is not meant historically. I, I I think that I can actually take it historically, and it's still not an issue. God is in his God's sovereignty isn't impinged because he uses instrumental means such as a lying spirit or something like that, but. I'm just saying in general, the in terms of John Sawyer's point, this monotheizing trend, they're saying God is absolute. He doesn't take counsel from people. He is sovereign over everything, and he tell, He merely informs people. So this is the monotheizing trend that we're going to, apart from these, you know, these couple these, texts. Apart from, apart from these texts that show that he's not right. <laughs> so yes, I... but yeah, if you have if you have like hundreds of texts and then just two that are out of sorts and two that can be interpreted in ways that do not impinge on that, then this this is a point to consider. Um, I, like I said, and even if it's wrong, this is I don't care if John Sawyer's point is right or wrong here necessarily. I, my my uh, notion of God being sovereign can survive. Even if he takes advice from okay. Satan, so well, okay. Let's, let's let's stick with your notion of God being sovereign then, because I, um, you know, maybe that's something I have a ghost of a chance of understanding. Um, so sure, yeah, but, but I, I'm uh, happy to present Sawyer's thing for the audience to consider at least. But yeah, but yeah okay, okay. So let's. The the point is my overall point is that there is this struggle that is evident in all parts of the scriptures, even the scriptures that I are completely embarrassing. That there okay. is a struggle in the scripture over God's nature, and I believe that monotheism wins out in the end. But the difference between you and I here is you would say, "Oh, well, it's not a real struggle; it's an apparent struggle," uh, and it becomes clarified over time. Whereas I would say different people over over hundreds of over centuries had different and or refined ideas of who and what God was. There were times in these centuries when people didn't know who Moses was. The, I mean, the, the, I, you know, the, we lose sight of how long a period of time this was. I mean, we're in, we're in 2019, uh, getting ready to flip the calendar another year, go back to 1019 uh, and look at all of the stuff that we have institutionally forgotten um, and, and just misremember. Um, mm -hmm. This is, this is, um, and, and we're talking about more than a thousand years, I think, in, in some of these cases. So the, the fact is, um, you know, I, I don't, 
I, I don't think you can make the kind of case that you're wanting to make with the crumbs that we that that survived. Well, I, I okay. So so this is my my claim. My original claim has been established regardless of this question about where the Jews, you know, like the Sunday school version of monotheists, or or was it a a mess um, and that sort of thing, uh, with many Jews being polytheists, polytheists and and henotheists and all and uh, you know this yeah. the Old Testament reacting against this and trying to monotheize monotheize from within Uh, can we we just take a moment and clarify some of these terms I had a a note here because I knew that these words would be tossed up so monotheism is the belief in only one god and no other gods Um, polytheism uh, and it's it's just it's not only the belief it's the belief and worship of the one and only true god Polytheism is the belief in and worship of multiple gods at the same time. Um, henotheism is a belief in multiple gods, but the worship of only one god as one god is supreme. And then there's another level of it, Cathism, Cathenotheism, I want to say. I've never heard of that. Yeah, well, so... Can you spell that? Yeah. Uh, I, I probably can. Um, but, uh, <laughs> as soon as I, I, as soon I, as I, as soon as I pull uh, it up on my computer here. Um, okay. Yeah, K-A-T-H-E-N-O. So it's henotheism with a cat in front of it. Cathenotheism. Cathenotheism. Anyway, what that means is serial worship of multiple gods. So you you believe there's uh, multiple gods. You only worship one of those gods at a time. So you might worship one god as supreme today uh, and then someplace else worship another uh, god, uh, you know, in, in that place. And so I think that, in fact, if we're, if we're looking at the bulk of the Old Testament, they were Cathinotheists. <laughs> more than more than anything else, because they actually did believe in multiple gods. How do we know they believed in multiple gods? Because they were always going out worshiping other gods. This was this is not this is not in question. The, the reason I don't go off and worship other gods is because I don't believe in them. I don't believe I don't believe they're there. The reason they went off and worshipped other gods is because they did believe in them. They only believed, though, that any god, any given god, was supreme at any given time in a given location. So it was very, the idea of God was very local, um, and so it was kind of serial worship. So what they were not, for the most part, were, were polytheists. Uh, there may have been some part of them that was polytheist, uh, you know, at some period of time. But I think that largely they were not polytheists, and that they worshipped lots of gods at the same time. <laughs> The, just as a, a contrast, the Egyptians were polytheists. Uh, okay. and, and even then, it was based on pantheons, I would say. So, I mean, the Egyptians would worship their pantheon of gods, but not give your god any particular credit. So, they would have been kind of polyhenotheist. The Jews were more Catholic Um uh, because 
they would go off and they would worship Moloch, you know, for a while. If, you know, they're in Babylon or whatever. And, you know, they'd go off and worship Baal in Assyria, or, you know, where, wherever these things were. Um, it was always for them a matter of who's the strongest god here and now. Okay. Um, so yeah. So yeah. First of all, this is great. I learned a new a new term uh, that I never heard. So that's always awesome. So yeah, look look that up for for everyone. But okay. So see, I I don't I don't know. I don't think that the Jewish people were all single file. I, I don't know about the distinctions enough about Catholicism uh, versus. Um, you know, uh, versus uh, polytheistic or heno. Well, I know, I know, I know henotheism and stuff, right? right. One just just big cat in front of it. <laughs> so yeah, can, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so, twister, but you, you know, you, we understand what we're talking about. Okay, so so let's let's be honest here. David's absolutely right on the scale of time. There are count, and this isn't controversial even for you fundy evangelical Christians. The I, I posted this in a, a response to Brian uh, yesterday. There are multiple times that the Bible itself tells us the Hebrews were, ig were ignorant. They were ignorant. They totally forgot about the law. Uh, king Josiah was shocked. Uh, he's known as a great king. He found, he stumbled across the, the Torah and, and went back to living according to which implies he totally forgot about it. Um, after the, the Babylonian exile, we're, we're told the Hebrews totally forgot everything about the Old Testament. So. This this isn't a controversial claim. The Bible itself tells us this, and there are repeated instances in the Bible, especially during the monarchical period, pre pre exilic period, um, where the people oscillate um, between polytheism or kenotheism. Um, I don't really care about the difference and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that they happened at the same time, right? There's different people. We we know when people. Certain monotheists, strong monotheists, were in power or, or going around. The people didn't always follow their leaders. We we have archaeological evidence for Asherah poles. It's in the Bible. I was going to bring up um, Asherah poles in maybe your next uh, podcast. Okay, saving a little something for the people, but yes. Well, that well that wouldn't be relevant to the New Testament, right? That that's relevant here in the Old Testament, right? So yeah. so Asherah. Because I don't is, know what your roadmap is, I I, I wasn't sure where. It fits here. So, yeah, we can bring that out. God, Asherah was for the, the Canaanites and that sort of thing. He was she's Mrs. God um, for L uh, for the, you know, the Canaanites. She's God's wife. God's consort is not even strong enough. She's she's God's feminine other half. Counterpart. Yeah. So Israel Israelites were influenced by this and they had. <clears throat> Worshipped Asherah poles. We we have archaeological proof for this. Uh, we have biblical. Yeah, right. I was proof. just going to say you, need, you don't even need the archaeological proof for this conversation. It's it's all it's all through the Old Testament. It's in the Bible. Yeah. So so it's it's a mess during the monarch even up to the monarchical period. The he, in terms of the culture and the Hebrew people, um, I don't know. I, I mean, we we see these trends even in polytheistic things. It, it's not even fair to call them straightforward polytheists uh, as opposed to kinetheists or henotheists because in, in Egypt and, and in other cultures, they they oscillated at times. So Egypt, the most famous example is 
Akhenaten, who became a quote-unquote monotheist, which uh, I don't know if that's true. Maybe he was a, a, a henotheist or something, but he worshipped the sun god, the one god. He's the father of King Tut. Uh, and this destroyed the polytheism of, of the day, and the Egyptians overthrew him and, and that sort of thing, and, and got rid of that, and went back to their traditional polytheistic notion. But um, John Sawyer brings up up these pagan polytheistic examples where there's a, a monotheizing trend. He doesn't want to say the ancient Jews pre-exile were supported monotheism. He's he's arguing against that. Um, but he's saying that there was a monotheizing trend, which could be consistent with the, the kenotheism uh, or henotheism and even a mixture going on simultaneously, which I think is more accurate if you're looking at the people. So what what matters for us making our decision is what does the Bible, the Old Testament literature say, not doing a cultural survey, which the Bible tells its, itself was, was a mess at the time. The, the, the Israelites were not always faithful to God. They they should have known better, but they didn't. And they, they went back and played the harlot uh, with other god, pagan gods and stuff and goddesses. Uh, so yeah, in terms of the Old Testament, that's what really matters for my claim. And we can we can see even in the blatantly polytheistic texts, we can blatantly see a monotheizing trend countering it, saying no Yahweh exclusivism. God God alone is the one true God. He is the God of all. He is the God of gods. He is the King of Kings. He created all reality, including those fake pagan gods that you think are are real. And this carried over into the second temple period by saying, you know, there's this this oscillation. You're just stone and statue. I can push you over. But there's also at the same time a recognition that there's demonic power, right? Demones or, that stands behind the worship of these pagan gods. And that's what that's how I would interpret these these blatant polytheistic or, or what John Sawyer calls the quote-unquote embarrassingly polytheistic text. I, I think there is a real a real ontologicalness behind the the poly the pagan gods. It's it's demonic. So it, it's correct to speak of them, yeah, the, the idols themselves aren't true gods. Uh, they aren't divine in any way. They're just, you know, these are just stone. You can throw them over. They're created, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. But there is a... These idols were representatives of gods. I think it's almost too simplistic to say, well, you know, they worshipped idols and Jews worshipped a god. They were representatives of gods in the same way that, you know, you might say Catholics worship idols. Well, they don't think their idols are actually god. Um, And, you know, you can... (coughs) Aaron built an idol, if you will, representing Yahweh, uh, that that was just a hunk of gold. Didn't mean that there wasn't a god behind it. And so I, it, it feels almost strawmanish to say, oh, well, the, these other guys' gods are just chunks of wood. So uh, so you made a point I wanted to refute that. Uh, so, okay, when, when it speaks of there are two categories. I, I can't find the reference uh, to the scholar that I was reading this, but there are two categories, right? So there's the divine council. The, these are the angels and that sort of thing in the, the heavenly host. Right. And, the, um, and, and, just, and later just on, you're saying that, that the divine council, the heavenly host, this is what I was talking about earlier with the we. Um, 
I believe that that would have been the case in the minds of the writers, and that does not, in fact, reflect any kind of complex being. So you can you can argue, well, it could be a complex being, but it also reads more straightforward as just a defined council of separate individuals. Right. Okay, so, so in that case, I agree fully with you. that The divine council, the question that we're debating now, which is your... I thought it was your claim, but you're you're just giving it as a, a statement of belief. It, it's actually it's totally separate from my claim in my blog, right? So my blog is interested in what is the nature of Yahweh. Forget about whether henotheism or kenotheism or whatever is true. Let, I don't care. I, I'm just saying we've got Yahweh. He's an exclusive category of his own. What's what is his nature? Is he an absolute unique uh, unity or a complex unity? What we're discussing here is a, is a separate issue. What is his, God's relation to the heavenly hosts? And I totally agree with you. That's talking about the angels. Those are separate. They're not just distinct. They're not un, They're not unities. These are creatures. And the only reason those, we're talking about these separate hosts is because you won't give me a more full definition of this complex being. So no, no, I, don't, not, I don't think we can that. talk about or extrapolate the nature of Yahweh. Um, we can extrapolate the nature of other things and other gods and other you know parts of the council, but we don't have enough to extrapolate about Yahweh's ontology yet. <laughs> well, but there are there are hints to it, and and, and I'm not, all I'm, I'm not saying is every hint that you're up. giving can be read a different way. I'm not even trying to say that your your hints have to be wrong. I, I'm just saying that they don't have to be right, and they don't they don't. It's not intuitive to read it your way. If you bring with it a Christian assumption about trinities, then you can read it that way and and not be crazy. I don't think it's crazy. Um, okay. I think it's a nice try. <laughs> well, that, well, that's all I'm arguing for, right? Like, I, I, I tried to turn this into a, a prophecy, uh, not a prophecy, but like a divine understanding argument. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I couldn't do it as a G-belief authenticating event. But, but... Anyways, for, for my point, you, great. I, I, my point has been established then. Even if you want to say that different interpretations are equally possible, I can just say I don't care. I don't have to favor my interpretation over one. As long as it's equally possible, then they're consistent. They're not contradictory. But I don't know what that gains <laughs> because I, I think it's a fairly weak um, point. It, you know, this would fall under... Um, I don't think she would mind me calling her out. This would fall under Teddy's um, uh, formulation of anything's possible. Um, but you, you haven't you haven't proven that your case is particularly likely, or that it's more likely than just a simple um, committee. So, so in the first place, I think I have because I do I do provide positive reasons that rule out. God just being a complex unity in, in just the sense of having a heavenly host. That's what I was trying to get to um, in my point, right? I think you might get to that when we talk about persons and what what a distinct uh, versus separate person is. But because we couldn't get very deep in there, I don't I don't think that you have touched on that yet. Now, now maybe you will in 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 you know episode three, but I don't I don't think you've gotten there yet. Right, because episode three goes beyond what the the ancient Hebrews had a clear concept of of people being uh, um, they had a very 
primitive understanding of, of what a, a person is. And they, in the same sense that they view themselves as, as person, it's not in a philosophical sense. This is why I'm hemming and hawing when I'm saying this, but they, they recognize that God, they were made in the image of God. God was like them. He, he wasn't like a dog. Right. I think that they thought about persons in the same way I think about persons. <laughs> so great. I'm, great. As, I'm as primitive as they are, maybe. Cool. So th that's all I need. That That's all I'm trying. I'm not trying to go beyond that in this episode at all. And that, that's, but I, I was trying, I wanted to respond. But, but you, you made a they, point if that they I felt think if, Let me just cap that off, though. If they think about persons the way I think about persons, then you can't be right about them thinking about complex beings the way Christians think about it. Because they're very different. So I'm, I, we really have to dig a little bit deeper into this idea of personhood to get to complexity. Because right now we're not talking about complex beings. We're just talking about something that's really confusing and it sounds oxymoronic. Okay, so so in terms of your, your point, though, so with henotheism and all of that, that, there is a distinction that the ancient Jews understood. They recognized, they didn't have terminology of a complex unity or something. They weren't piecing together the, the pieces of the puzzle, perhaps, but they were they understood the distinction, the one and onlyness of God aloneism, right? God, Yahweh, Yahweh, let's, let me let me finish. Yahweh alone, that distinguished him from the heavenly host, that distinguished him from the false gods. The gods were not in the heavenly host category. They were in the second category that Nathan McDonald uh, brings up. Um, you know, the, the false god, the demons, the, that sort of thing, they, they were not a part of God's heavenly host. But you, you are correct. Even with the heavenly host, we can see a monotheizing trend there. That, and it's bad. Like the Hellenistic Jews stopped, increasingly we see them stop mentioning the heavenly host. There's a, a, a trend away from them because they thought it was too too close to God, I guess, or something like that. So but even in the earliest times when it wasn't an issue to talk about the heavenly host, the angels and that sort of thing, they didn't. They clearly saw Yahweh is exclusively in a category by himself. And that that's what the scholarship indicates. That And that's what made Israel unique. Because with the other cultures, when they went through kenotheism or henotheism, and they, they did do this, they would switch or oscillate between ascribing various attributes of different polytheistic gods and they would occasionally give it to all one god supreme or say that this one god supreme and shares the different attributes that previously were to, for different polytheists so these trends happened but it would oscillate to different gods so one week it would be this is a, an exaggeration but like one decade it would be Ra, Amun Ra who had all these and then the next it would be I don't know ISIS or something like that. It it, it would um, it would it'd be fluid. Whereas the Hebrews are unique in the ancient Near Eastern world for being consistent. Yahweh exclusivism and that never changed. Yahweh was always seen in this category, even in texts where they're blatant polytheists that would be embarrassing for modern sensibilities or something. They had this Yahweh exclusivism. He is in a category of his own. Whether you think there are these other gods or they're or a heavenly host or, or whatever, um, they recognize Yahweh exclusivism. So that, yeah, that's I don't I don't actually disagree um, with okay. with any of that, but you know, I would say that 
you know, these texts are large, you know, a lot of these are written by the priestly class. Uh, all priests are exclusivists when it comes to their gods because that's their livelihood. <laughs> it's their career. Um, so unless they were, you know, a part of a limited pantheon like the Egyptians, you know, those priests would be representative of a particular set of gods, but they wouldn't represent, you know, the enemy's gods, <laughs> for instance. So um, I don't, I don't think it is surprising that the text would lean to toward exclusivism, since that's, you know, kind of how these people got paid. Um, but that said, there's still an embarrassing amount uh, of information in the text that suggests that even the writers themselves did not exclude the idea of other gods existing. They just thought that their god was the best one. I, I don't know if, it, if it's even that simple, because remember, the state became polytheistic. The, there were so many bad kings who paid these priestly class, where, and even, even the official institutions were corrupted uh, on multiple occasions, according to the Bible. Just, just reading the Bible as a fundy Christian or whatever, it, it, it tells us this. So it, I don't even need to rely on scholarship or archaeology. So it's, it's not as... It's not as simplistic as I as I think you want to make it. Like, oh, the you know the the establishment was always strictly monotheistic, and so they had the one. I, I I don't mean to make it any of this sound simple, <laughs> um, okay. because it is it is not um, simple. I think that a simpler reading of these texts, if if you're trying to figure out God's nature, I think the the more straightforward reading is the better reading. But once again, we will make more of that case as the weeks go by. The the politics behind it, no, none of that was simple. Um, this is, but this is what I mean. If if God was in fact, if if understanding the nature, the ontological nature of God was important, and God was communicating directly with these people, we would expect them to have a very clear, solid understanding of who he is. I mean, for Pete's sake, he's talking to Adam and Eve directly in the Garden of Eden. We would expect people to have a very clear, unified idea of what kind of being God is from the beginning throughout. That would be a clear, consistent message in the Bible, and it simply is not. Um, well, yeah, I don't. Th I don't think we would have an expectation for it to to be clear as such. Like, I, I, I mean, yeah, God important. gives. Yeah, but people people are stupid and they forget things, as you said, right? This is over a long, long period of time. So, like, and and people are sinful. I mean, even the stories themselves within the same people that saw the miracles of a mountain standing over them when they came into a covenant relationship with God. They still sinned and, and went after a, tried to build a golden calf and stuff like that. So it's... Yeah, I think that's more to do with the nature of the fact that these are made up stories more than the idea that people are sinful and stupid. I, I think that stories need uh, plots and plot points to move them along. I think this is, you know, I'd put this in the same category as excuse me, the story of uh, Peter rejecting uh, Jesus at the end, all the apostles rejecting Jesus, and then none of them hanging around to see if he would rise from uh, uh, the grave. Instead, they go fishing, and you know it's just it's not actually human nature. 
that we would forget something like that. Uh, that these, these, some of these very people were in the room when Jesus raised dead people. Um, and so I don't, I just, I don't buy the idea that they're real events that, you know, one day they're raising dead people with Jesus and literally the next day they're running from a few guys with swords that, that doesn't read, um, true to me. It does, though, right? Because it, we, even in the modern world, we have people, whether you think they're right or wrong, we have people that do believe they witnessed miracles. They think it's real, just like the Israelites supposedly witnessed God's miracles in front of them. Um, and yet, the next day, they go on sinning or they go on but, but making the, a but false. But their, their claims don't read true to me either. <laughs> so I'm, I'm. Oh, you, th- you think they're lying about the the miracle? Lying like- is is a harsh word. I think that if they really believed the magic they claim to have seen, they would be different. Uh, I don't. I don't think that anyone who's seen real magic would view the world in the same way that I do. For instance, I'm I'm a strict materialist, um, and so and especially if you've done the magic, you know, if you if you have said hocus pocus and raised a dead person. Tomorrow, you're not running from a guy with a sword. Sorry, not not happening. That is not. If you actually did it and you actually believed it, you don't stop believing it the next minute. You know, it's it's a little bit like saying, well, this doctor he did an amazing heart surgery, he did a heart transplant, and then another patient comes with a bad heart and he says, oh no, that's impossible. I don't know how we would ever replace a heart. No, that's not how we 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 know that. No, this is a thing we can do. I've got some experience doing this and you don't suddenly, you know, unless you've got some kind of brain damage, turn around and forget, you know, what, what the nature of your abilities are. Um, and so, yeah, no, I think that these are, these are story plots and it reads to me as false when, when you're talking about the Jews going off, worshiping other gods, you know, like, you know, God literally just did this thing, held the sun in place for, you know, an extra hour or two or whatever. And then, uh, you know, then then when they wake up the next morning, they build an idol. No, sorry, that doesn't that reads false to me. That reads like um, a storyteller trying to tell a story. It doesn't read like human events. Right, but but that does happen in the Bible. So in terms of the, there are false elements for the sake of storytelling, right? There there are literary devices that make us reading the modern text go how how can you be this stupid um but that that's it's not reflecting entirely everything that happened and once you know all the details things make sense so it, it, it's kind of, even even um like reading the tale about acts of the apostles there are some things you you might say though that how did how did this happen right because he's conflating events or he he's writing about the events as a story um, where there are certain details excluded or selected in and out and it makes it sound a certain way that's unrealistic but once you understand the context or understand more details it makes perfect sense and this has happened in biblical scholarship we've come a long way from the 1800s where they would point out to certain things but then we would learn new additional details and we would go, oh, that's that's what the text is talking about. It, it makes so perfect sense. So I haven't sense. read any details that make that make sense to me. And even if you could make a case in the Old Testament that these events were spread out over long periods of time, and you're 
Um, you know, so people forget. I mean, read the book of John, and these events happened within the space of a year. Read any of the others, and they had happened in the space of three years. This is less time than it takes to get a bachelor's degree at a typical university. You don't forget uh, that quickly. I just, these do not read like normal humans behaving like humans. These read like straw men. Um, and I think that is what they are. But that said, look, I don't. I, I will. I will talk about the New Testament and the Gospels and, and some other time. So preview people. Here you go. Um, yeah. But um, it's the same in the old. It's the same thing going on in the Old Testament. You, you've got this false view uh, of what happened in a simplistic way, and it's it's not your fault. It's it's, it's what we learn in, in Sunday school, right? Because well, we we'll just have we'll just read the story. That's. I mean, that's how the story reads. Right. So, so I think it, that's where it's important to to understand how the Bible's written. It, it's 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 you're assuming certain things going into it. Like it, it wasn't how. Oh, it's clear. God lifted a mountain over your head. He he explained to them. Look, uh, there's an afterlife. I'm God. You know, it's kind of like the modern Jewish rabbinic notion that there's God gave Moses the oral law in in its entirety. They had perfect understanding of everything, even to the point where Moses traveled to the future and witnessed a debate between Rabbi Akiba and Hillel or versus Shillel or something like that. Uh, it, this is not what happened. It, it wasn't instant. Oh, they had they had complete proper monotheistic knowledge at the point that miracle happened. Then the next day, literally, they're they're building a calf statue that that's not realistically what what happened, even if it maybe from a simplistic reading of the text it might seem like that because of the way it's it's written we have to be For, forgive my simpleton reading I... not as an insult <laughs> I, I, I read it this, i read it the same way this, so, this so is I, actually one of the few times when i don't think you meant it as an insult so but <laughs> i take it yeah <laughs> i read it the same way but i'm just saying we, we have to be responsible in our reading and realize that there are things going on uh, beyond our understanding, and, and we get this. But, I, but I can't remember remember our presuppositions coming in. I read it as a piece of literature. You're you're theologizing on top of the literature and bringing in presuppositions. So I don't think that there are things we have to understand. Um, I don't think that these other hidden messages that the Spirit reveals, or you know, that if if you spend no. another three years and in college you'll you'll get the secret meaning i think it says what it says and mostly means what it means i think it's fairly straightforward literature um and uh, you know if it's not uh i i'm not saying that it couldn't be if it's not if there is something more going on then i think it defies what the average person can uh actually be expected to read and comprehend and you know you can put that as reason number 357 in my series of why no one, why why I stopped reading the Bible or caring about it, and why why you shouldn't care about it either. Okay, so I, I would just deny that. So I I'm not uh, my case today really relies on reading this as historical literature. The the only assumption that you've drawn drawn to bear is that look I, I need to I need to assume that and, and I can. We can get into arguing textual scholarship, textual criticism for the Old Testament text and that sort of thing. But I just assumed that what we had in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in our Old Testament Bibles today, which we know was preserved 
relatively perfectly from the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls until the Masoretic text, and that's the basis of what we have. I'm in not our... arguing how well the Dead Sea Scrolls were preserved, though. When I when I when I talk about textual criticism, I'm not arguing at it from that level. I'm saying whoever wrote those symbols down on the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves were interpreting. That is an interpretation as to whether they are saying, oh, well, this is Lord capital L, Lord small L, Lord capital four-letter Lord. That That is not a somehow a dictation from God, if I understand the Christian claims uh, correctly. And so you, you're, unless you want to claim a... Um, you know that in this case, inspiration meant exact dictation, and that they couldn't have gotten anything wrong. You're still leaving a lot of uh, room for human error in there, or human interpretation. Right. So, so I, I'm assuming though that the the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint, um, you know, Samaritan Pentateuch, and that sort of thing, they were all they go back to the original authors in terms of what the text. Set. I'm, I'm not debating whether, you know, so, somewhere along the line, a scribe invented Yahweh or something, and that was that wasn't in originally in Genesis or Exodus or something like that. I, I'm saying I'm just assuming for the sake of argument because you have to admit that's that's a totally separate topic, right? Trying to get into textual criticism and that sort of thing. So I, yes. Once you, right. once you I'm, give me that, then I know, This make is kind my... of a throwback to that earlier discussion that we had. And I was just clarifying my position. I'm not questioning whether we got the Dead Sea Scrolls right. I'm questioning whether whoever penned the Dead Sea Scrolls heard from God so accurately and in such a way that we can count on the exact uh, uh, strokes of his pen that you know he used this word properly and not another i'm just saying it's interpretation all the way down when someone wrote lord whatever their word for lord is they then had to interpret well what what lord does this mean is it that lord is it that lord and they wrote it down and i don't see any reason why we should look at that then and say ah well that's you know that then is exactly what god had in mind randall rouser is a sitting theological professor when I say sitting people, I just mean he's he's a practicing professor right now. He's not someone who's retired to do speeches and books. Um, he disagrees with you. He would agree with me. In what way? No, he wouldn't. Yes, he would. Depends what you mean. Okay. Yeah. On, on... He he wouldn't he would not suggest that um, you know just because there is there is a word there, that we have somehow a an exact precise dictation. Uh, of what these of what these words and tenses should be, um, we have humans, um, you know, doing their best to understand the message of God, and they can get the translation and the transmission wrong, and they often did. He he would agree with that. I guarantee you, yes, and so do I. But I, I guarantee you that Randall Rouser would agree with me that in the case of. The Lord all capitals and the Lord not all capitals. He would agree with me that the scholarship is that's not a mistake. That that's how the original texts were written. They made this distinction over and over and over again. It's not just it's, like, but, but you're still act. missing what I'm saying. I'm not even. I'm, I don't care uh, about that. What I'm saying is the people who made that distinction might be wrong. 
we, we have we have no way of knowing that they were right every time they made that decision. That's a human decision they made. Who who are we talking? Are we talking about the original writers? Or are you talking about the copyists? Well, look, you can, I mean, you can go back to the original writers. We don't have the original writers. We don't know who the original writers were. We don't have the original writings. There are no autographs of the Bible. But I'm just I'm just assuming the autographs. Just just assume the original writers uh, in this conversation. We have no reason to believe that the original writers would have been correct. And, and this is what Randall would agree with me on. He, he, he thinks that the Bible is full of uh, situations where they just got the message wrong, where they misrepresented God, where they said God said this and God never said this. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, so I guess when, when I you don't build, need when to... You build your case, when you build your case on something like, you know, the, the particular tense of this particular Hebrew word, I, I think you're building it on a house of straw. Or not, not building a straw house on a house, uh, foundation of sand. I, I don't know. Okay, so, Make your so own let's, metaphor. Remember, let's remember what I'm doing, right? I, this is a continuation from a, a Coherence of Christian Theism series last year, because I never got to get to the Trinity and, and Incarnation part. So I'm arguing for coherence. I'm not arguing that the Trinity is true in, in these series of blogs. Um, so, right, but you're arguing I, that I the Old Testament is consistent with it based on it's based on the simple words that you see in it. And I'm just saying, no, we don't. We can't do that yet. I okay, think you're going to so, have to go deeper, and I think you're going to have to make more of a case. I am not saying that your case is lost, that you that you haven't made your case, that you can't make your case. Make your case, but you haven't made it today. Oh yes, I have. Yes, I have. So so let's. This textual issue is is totally beside the point. Um, if you're giving me the originals, if you're giving me the original authors saying this, great. Then I've made my case. If you're not giving me the original author said this, but the authors of the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, multiple authors, may all made the same mistake around the same sort of time. Um, then I would say that's. In, I could argue on textual grounds that's improbable because we we have. Uh, examples where these right. texts also know what I'm saying I, I, I'm well, I happy to give you uh, the originals which we don't have but I'm happy to I'm happy to give you that because it doesn't matter okay so so the point the point is then I can't prove that they were inspired when they wrote this it, it, they could have been teaching the Trinity pretend they pretend they taught the Trinity explicitly God is a Trinity but I can't. I'm not trying to prove that they were inspired when they wrote that. I'm just saying, look, we have this text, and it teaches the Trinity, and/or it teaches God as a complex unity in a way that's consistent with the Trinity. That's my my technical claim. Whether the text is true or false, right. what you just is not said is what I plan to bring up next week um, when you talk about the Trinity once again. Uh, everyone has to realize I can only guess at what you're going to talk about. Uh, because it's going to be, I'll, I'll tell you up, up front. So it'll be, it'll be the New Testament. Uh, it's again a scriptural question, uh, and my pivotal text is, is the opening verse in John. I, I don't anticipate you're going to deny that John saw Jesus as divine or something like that, uh, or that he taught God became incarnate. Uh, you know, Jesus was God. At the moment, I don't plan to question that. 
Okay, when, so, so that I'm, when, I'm, when I'm forced to look into it, who knows what I will dig up? But I don't. That's that's not something that it crossed my mind to question. Cool. Okay, and and most people don't. Like, uh, in fact, no no one does. Uh, Richard Carrier wouldn't. Um, but so I'm using that as the pivotal text in in my series, and then I'm going to say, I'm going to compare it to. Depends how much space I have because this, this blog's like 2300, and I know you want to keep it to 800. So I I might do. Comparing that is is John's text there uh, consistent with um, early earliest Christianity, uh, Paul's writings, and the Gospel of Mark, because that's where skeptics um, will try to say, well, Paul didn't teach this, or the early Christians didn't teach it, and they'll say Mark. There are two or three different types of Trinitarian view in scripture. Uh, one of them would be John, where you start where, you know, Jesus is God from the beginning. Another would be an adoptionist view where Mm -hmm. Jesus, where God adopted, uh, uh, Jesus, uh, there may be a third view where, where Jesus kind of grows into Godhood after, uh, or becomes God after the resurrection. I mean, there, there are some different views there. So, uh, definitely something, yeah. that, something yeah. to be talked about. So, so, yeah. So, so that's, that's what my plan is. And if you want to see the universalizing threat, so how does this old Testament blog relate? I, I've established what Yahweh exclusivism, based on what Richard Bauckham argues is the divine identity. Those those two those two fundamental characteristics. It, it's not a what question, an ontological question that the the Jews, even in the New Testament, they, they're not getting into the what question really. Um, they're getting into who God is. So his extrinsic relations, his covenant or relations with the people of Israel, implying a cultic monotheism, some people have called it, Um, and also that there's uh, God's extrinsic unique relations to creation as a whole. He alone is the creator of everything, uh, and he alone is the sole ruler. This is how the Jews of the Old Testament would have, you know, if you asked the Jew, what, what made your God so special? This is how they would have answered, well, and it was the same. As the right Jews at the right time in history, that's what they would have said. If you had asked the different set of Jews the different time in history, they wouldn't have said that. I mean, it's, you know, look, you said it yourself earlier, and I, I mean, we keep coming back okay. to this because this is okay. so, this is so complicated. Um, there is no, there is, this is not a, um, one size fits all the old testament jews believed blank you you they believed everything um, uh, it just depends on when so and and to clarify so remember i, I said i don't care about jews as individuals uh that's right. supplementary you're, you're, but you're talking it seems like you're talking about what the biblical jewish writers were trying to portray um, yes. as the you know as the official word in nature of God and all I'm, I'm even when you just stick with that it mm-hmm. seems that many of the official writings acknowledge uh, councils and all all out other gods and powers other than God um, they, yeah they do in, in yeah, the universe, so but but did you get my argument so I acknowledge that and I said that's not a problem it may be problematic for us as Christians, because we're uncomfortable with that. But I'm, I'm saying that wasn't a problem for establishing est- establishing the divine identity of Yahweh. That I'm going to be arguing 
for with the New Testament. I'm going to be saying that Jesus shares in this divine identity, according to Mark, and that's how we get to okay. say he well, is. Let's yeah. find out. But I, I can't tell you whether it's consistent that Jews could see Jesus as Yahweh at the moment without understanding what you are saying the Jews considered as personhood to begin with. And, you know, how much... Just how much room did they have in their definition of persons? You know, could it have included, you know, a a you know persons as say I think of as persons? Um, I don't I don't know, and so I'm I'm just going to have to wait until you make more case uh, before yeah. I throw more iron at it. Yeah, yeah, I guess um, so. My. I guess before we go to closing, because it, it's you that gets the last word since I started today. But yeah, my my fundamental point is that uh, look, the the ancient Jews, even the New Testament, doesn't provide a a proper understanding of uh, what personhood is. What what are the essential properties of being a quote unquote person? Why why is it a a dog is a not a person, but human beings are a person? What what you know, we're, that's that's a philosophical question. That the Bible itself, even it, as late as the New Testament era, doesn't spell out explicitly that the Jews and the early Christian, the earliest Christians that wrote the New Testament, aren't thinking this way. That they don't care. That comes later on in the second century with Logos Christology, where they start to try to put together the the raw biblical data and make sense of it. And and We'll be, and, you know, in part three, we'll be learning about Logos Christology, which is the first attempt, right? Obviously stemming from, from John's gospel about God being, Jesus being the Logos and that sort of thing. But um, for, for the point here, it's with the Bible, we have this divine identity of Yahweh. There, there are clearly multiple persons that fall under the name, the united name of Yahweh. Um and this isn't polytheism. This isn't saying that they're the same. That you know, it, it's it's a more it's a closer for the ancient years to mind. It's a it's a more unified thing than just saying, oh, they're they're a bunch of individual people sitting on a council. There, there seems to be more of it in that they get to share this divine name, and other people of the heavenly host don't. The angels don't get to go by the name Yahweh. The other pagan gods don't get to fall under Yahweh. Uh, Jesus, Jesus does, or, or this wisdom, or the Word does, um, and, and you know this. The vis for the Old Testament, the visible God does get to be have this name Yahweh. Um, so, so there's something there's something here that hopefully I'll spell out in, in future things. But I think there's enough here to to wet your whistle and go. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's my case. And yeah, go ahead, David. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, we speak of the presidency, um, and we might be thinking of the current fool who sits in the chair behind the desk in the Oval Office, or we might be thinking about the Secretary of State, um, you know, or some other member of uh, the President's cabinet. Um, that's not ruled out either. Uh, I don't think that we think of it in some complex sense of, you know, some some single being with multiple personalities that, you know, gets to incarnate 
in, in different forms in different places at different times. Um, so I, I think we could speak of the presidency in much the same way that um, the Jews sometimes spoke of God. It's plural, it's singular, but it's not terribly complex. That's, those are just accidents of language, but we know uh, what we mean. And when a Christian talks about you know, a complex unity, we don't actually know what they mean. Uh, and so it, it is a different thing than what you might be tempted to agree with. And so we, we do need to dig in there um, and figure out a little bit more uh, of what the Christian has on offer. And I would, I would argue that most Christians don't have anything on offer beyond this. Um, they haven't really thought about what the, what is a Trinity exactly. They just hear that you're supposed to think it, one in three persons, done. Let's go have a pizza. Uh, I, I applaud Dell for thinking about it uh, more deeply than that. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's still going to require some kind of explanation that's going to sound an awful lot like magic uh, at the end of the day. But, you know, so far we haven't even really gotten to the magic yet. <laughs> so um, we will. I will push this issue forward as we go. I don't know exactly where it's going to go. I don't know what part three and part four is going to have, but I will try to do my due diligence in asking the questions that, that suss this out further. So I'm going to invite uh, the skeptics in particular who are listening to this episode and who joined me in some of my confusion and hesitancy at the moment to uh, ask uh, the questions that you want me to ask to help clarify this thing a little bit more about complex unities. Uh, again, I want to make it clear I'm not saying that Dale is wrong. I don't know if I, don't know if I can say that right now. We don't. We just don't have enough. Uh, the Old Testament is not very clear on this. I don't think it was ever very clear on this. Um, mm-hmm. I tend to think that was a problem. If it was ever important, God should have made it clear to somebody at some point, and it just never, that never seems to happen. And so um, then we get to the New Testament, and, you know, Dale admits that the Trinity is a little bit clearer there, but not completely. So again, you know, we might end up with a brick wall where we've got half a bridge that seems to be leaning toward a certain direction, but it's not complete, and we don't actually know where it would end up if it was completed. And uh, we're filling in the rest of it with headcanon. So, yeah, let's let's see a little bit more of the case and um, see, uh, see where we go from there. Uh, in the meantime, next week... I have been vacillating uh, a lot about this. I was going to go miracles, but uh, Dale had asked to put that off because that's going to be a bigger uh, discussion. We're going to have to dive into some some material that neither one of us has time for right now. Uh, so next week, I'm going to talk about something very near and dear to my heart, which is the reasonableness of disbelief. And uh, I'm going to... Uh, kind of a, this is this is a visitation of an older theme, but I think it's time to bring it up again. And I'm I'm going to ask Dale to maybe do something a little bit different than what we normally do, uh, which is I will make the, rather than trying to make a counter case for why uh, disbelief is uh, not reasonable, I want Dale to make a case for the reasonableness of belief. And we simply oh, make switching. positive. No, I want you to oh. make a case for the reasonableness of belief. 
Uh, oh. So I want you to make your case for why faith and why belief in God is reasonable. I will make my case for why belief in God is not reasonable, and we will just mo- both make positive cases and let the audience sift through it um, and see who makes wow. the better case. Okay, I feel like we. Yeah, okay. it's, it's time to revisit it. And, and, and in this, it's not to say that there can't be a small section where you, uh, you know, if I, if you think that my case, especially in the written form, uh, has a, a blatant hole in it, that you can't rebut that. But at the end of the day, I am a little bit uh, fed up with listening to Christians make the weakest cases about why, you know, it's reasonable in some Pascalian kind of way. Uh, to believe, but but ignoring that, if that's the only case you want to try to make, it's also equally reasonable for skeptics to disbelieve. And I don't think we make that case enough. So I am going to make that case next week. I invite okay. Dale to make the uh, his his best case for for the reasonableness of his belief. But if Dale Dale, if you want to spend your entire time just making the case for why disbelief is unreasonable you can you can try <laughs> i don't i don't there's, think that would be the best use of your same, time two sides of the same coin yeah i'm just wondering like how is this going to be diff like reasonableness for belief in god it, it's we did a show on the existence of, of god there are arguments there's the properly basically art the census divinitatis yeah. which provides reason are we repeating right. the so same? You, you, what is well, it? You might be repeating the same thing. I don't know, but I will not be. And there has been once again um, a resurgence, let's say, for uh, atheists to make uh, their case. And I will not be, to be clear, I will not be making a case for why there is no God. Uh, that mm-hmm. is that is not actually the atheist position. Um, I will be making a case for why it is reasonable not to believe in one. Okay, even if there is a god. Okay, even, um, even if there I, I, is a god, with the current, okay. with with what we have right now, it is it is actually reasonable not to believe in a god. And what what Christians have been saying a lot uh, is that somehow, oh, we're just there's something wrong with us, or that there's some kind of bad motive you don't have a good reason to reject god yes we do uh in the in the christian wants to reject that the skeptic is being reasonable now the christian oh yes we're being reasonable uh to believe in this thing but the skeptic they're not being reasonable i want to uh make the case clear that that is simply untrue and whether or not i think the christian is being reasonable or not uh, is not really any part of the case i plan to make Okay. All right. Um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'll try to think. I'll, I'll talk to you after the show and maybe get some ideas as to how I can differentiate it. Because on my side, I don't want to. We we already did a show on the existence of God. I don't want to go over that again. So yeah, um, yeah. I'll, I'll talk to you and get get some ideas of maybe something different that I can bring to the table then for that. Just trust me, listeners. It's going to be great. It'll, All right. It'll cool. Be fine. Have a good week, everyone. <laughs>